Hello and welcome to episode 8 of the Retro Mecca podcast. I'm your host Ian and as always I'm here with Craig. How are you doing Craig? Not too bad man. It's all the better for speaking to you bud. Excellent, yes. Always good to talk robot anime with you Craig. Um, delving into the rich history of mecha anime. Mm-hmm. Something we'll come on to in, in just a moment. Talk about something related to that in a bit more depth. So uh, before we get started, another pandemic podcast mm. um lockdown is easing it would appear so um things are getting better mm-hmm. yes very very strange times but uh absolutely yeah we're still here we're still giving you reviews of classic mecha anime shows mm-hmm. so uh <laughs> that's one thing we can still do during lockdown Indeed. and all this so uh <laughs> yeah keep ourselves amused <laughs> exactly exactly I should have said this um, a few episodes ago, but uh, I think in episode six, we debuted our new cover art, uh, Mm -hmm. which was created by Alan, uh, also known as Professor Irony. You can find him on Twitter at Professor underscore Irony. Very, very talented artist, big big anime fan, really into uh, retro uh, anime and and classic anime. So um, please do check his work out. If you want a commission, want something special done, then please check him out. He's a very talented artist and we'll be using him again for something, uh, another little sort of side project Mm. we're going to sort of get into a bit later in the year as well. Watch the um, space. Watch this space indeed. <laughs> so going back to something you just referred to, Craig. So um, again, quite pertinent with the timing of this this podcast. So over the last week or so, um, there's been this whole discourse on Twitter about uh, Mecca is dead. Mm. Started by someone uh, with a YouTube channel, went on and on about it. Isn't um, it always YouTube? That... Is it always YouTube? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it sort of uh, spreads this uh, misinformation. So um, I think totally misinformed, really. You know, we've talked about how this sort of mecha anime output has declined yeah. over the decades. You know, we certainly don't get the the sort of multiple shows and the 50 episode stuff that we got mm. in the 70s and 80s. But, yeah. you know, mecha anime still does exist. Um, mm-hmm. It's still being output. But the actual fandom it's is huge. nowhere near dead. It's huge. Yeah. Absolutely huge. The books, the kits, the video games that are still being produced, you know, it's still lapped up. There is still an audience and a, you know, sort of a kind market of fever and following for it. Say. Yeah. <laughs> if Mecha Anime was dead in the West, Discotech wouldn't be putting out all those Mecha mm. shows. They wouldn't yeah. be putting out Combatler 5 and Voltus exactly. 5 and all the various Mazinga shows and, and all mm. the rest of it. You know, we wouldn't be getting a new box set of. Photones and, mm. and yeah. all that sort of stuff. It just, you know, there'd be no market for it, but there is. So, mm-hmm. absolutely. Know. And you know, we've seen um, new lines spring up all the time. You yeah. know, like Bandai have that super miniplay line, which, yeah. you know, previously um, was a lot of the kind of recognizable top tier shows. Now they're doing more obscure stuff. Yeah. They're doing a lot of super robot stuff from the 70s and, uh, you know, and some of it not that massively well known to the West as well. Uh, yeah. Some of it is, and some it's not. But, and we're getting more stuff in the motoroid uh, line yes. as well. You know, yeah. more both modern and old stuff. So yeah, it's um, there's just a lot of uh, a lot of output in general. You know, you, we still get books and sort of celebratory things and Super Robot Wars uh, yeah. continues in video game form. We've had a yeah. lot of mega games recently as well, a hell of a lot. And the Super Robot Wars, you know, every time one of those games comes out, there's a very fever and anticipation oh, yeah. for it. You just so... get like you know sort of about a month of all the uh, sort of crossovery yeah. bits being shared on Twitter and how awesome is this? We've got yeah. we've got like uh, characters like um 
<laughs> yeah. You know, got these characters together for the first time. <laughs> so Mecha isn't dead, you know. Absolutely. So yeah. It frustrates the head out of me when I see mm. that kind of thing. So it's um, just so much misinformation comes from uh, comes from YouTube, doesn't it? On particularly on uh, anime and games. I find. Yeah. But you know, there's a whole raft of people who really know kind of what they're talking about on on this. So you know, listen to Ollie Barda. Um, you know, there's there's lots of people uh, kind of know what really is going on and, and know yeah, that it I isn't mean, dead. We so. don't claim to know everything, but at the end of the day, we're we're sort of quick to point out things that are, yeah, you know, obviously. I like to, I like to think we're well informed. Yeah, if, if exactly, nothing else, yeah. well informed. Not not experts, but well informed. Not experts. I, I never <laughs> proclaim to be an expert, but I think I'm well informed. Yeah, and have a balanced view on things as well. Yes, exactly, exactly. And I think we demonstrate that on this podcast. You know, we don't rave about all of it. You know, we we mm. take the good with the bad on this. You yeah. know, and we we and where it's good, we we celebrate that it's good, and where it's bad, mm. we we call out that it's bad. You know, mm-hmm. so um, yeah, we don't profess that all of this stuff is perfect and and all of it mm. is good. You know, like exactly, like with all yeah. genres. You have to take the rough with the smooth. You do. I mean, that's all part of being critical at the end of the day, isn't it? It's, it is. That, is, that exactly. is the whole point of the podcast to review. Yeah, indeed. So, moving on to today's topic 1978 super robot show, Cosmic Devil Daikengo. This actually is one of the uh, so few super robot shows I didn't see um, at the time when I was kind of burning through it all. I, I back in the sort of early 2000s when I was kind of watching all this stuff raw I don't think there was a DVD set of Daikengo out at the mm. time so it didn't end up raw on on the various sort of fan sub bot torrent sites so um, I didn't I hadn't seen it and I would like to shout out to Lura uh, Lura fan subs uh, who also uh, fan subbed uh, Daltanius so mm-hmm. you know without these folk we've said it before absolutely yeah we, thank you very much Thank you very much indeed. We wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't be able to watch this stuff in in its glory and understand what's going on if it weren't for folk like Lura, mm. who uh, who, yeah. who spend the time fan subbing this. So Lura, you know, we're not worthy. So uh, some of you younger folk may not get that reference, but um, you know, I'll leave you to go and find out <laughs> where it come from. So go uh, down the rabbit hole. Yeah, go down the rabbit hole indeed. <laughs> So, um, so Greg, yeah. So this, I think this is your first viewing as it well, is. isn't it? Yes, I was completely new to Daikengo. Um, I'd heard the name, but that was about it. It's another one of those shows I just kind of hadn't researched a great deal. You know, I just kind of I've I've pretty much seen the robot. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and what the characters looked like. Um, and and I remember, you know, when when I first sort of heard the name, having a bit of a look at it and thinking, oh, this looks pretty intriguing. You know, just looking at the character designs and the sabers that they wield and stuff, I thought, oh, that actually looks pretty cool. So um, it, my interest was piqued when I first sort of heard about the show, but I didn't get around to it just like a million in other shows, even though I've meant to for quite some time. So when we started to do the podcast, there was a lot of shows like this where I just decided I'm just going to save that for the podcast rather than rather than watching it pre-podcast, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I kind of got on my radar because Mecha Design was by Kunio Okawara so mm. you know when I was getting into and learning about Gundam and mm-hmm. you know Votams and all the stuff that he designed especially at Sunrise during the early 80s mm-hmm. um, then you know you kind of start looking up as the anime news networks Excitepedia grew and got more filled and then you mm. find out oh actually he's done all this other stuff before Gundam that's when uh, you know it's kind of like oh he's done these sort of super robot shows as well so mm. that's where that's where I kind of first learned about it but like I say um 
because there wasn't a DVD set that mm. wasn't you know sort of dumped yeah. on the internet, um, uh-huh. I didn't get around to seeing it. Even though again, it's one of the when I was working through the Super Robot Chronicles and and translating all the show titles and and you know I've got this list on the spreadsheet of every mm-hmm. show in that book and it was like right I need to watch this I need to watch this <laughs> you know, just there wasn't the opportunity and and like and like you said you know when um, that became available and then started doing the podcast and was starting to work out a you know sort of Watch recording order. schedule it was like oh, actually yes we'll we'll park that one until it's time to uh, mm. to watch it on the for the podcast and, yeah. And again, it sits. And again, when it comes out, it kind of sits on that back end curve mm. um, of the Super Robot timeline. You know, we talked a lot about this in in the first episode when we reviewed mm-hmm. Zambot Three. You know, that sort of seventy five to seventy seven sort of peak. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you kind of a lot of shows, a lot of shows. Day, yeah. yeah, you know, there were five or six Super Robot shows concurrently airing at any one time. Mm-hmm. You had a bit of a tail off, and then you had the sort of the next boom with the, the real robot stuff, you know, when mm-hmm. you were again back to sort of half a dozen shows sort of airing concurrently. Um, mm-hmm. And then with all the OVAs that came out as well. So it kind of sits in that kind of lull and the sort of mm. just the start of the tail off of the sure. super the robot. Period, the transitional period, yeah. So, um, you know, like uh, Daltanius, it's, it's, just, it's just there, these sort of last ending. Um, and again, only 26 episodes as well. So... Mm. It's and easy you know, for us some... to get through with working yes. full time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and there would be some, you know, and I think that was quite telling as well. I think it was just, and I, we'll talk a little bit more when we, we review the mm. show in, in full, but um, sure. yeah, just that kind of back end sits in that kind of interesting back end bit of the, of the sort of uh, super robot period. Mm. Okay. So with that, we'll, uh, we'll get into our review of Daikengo. Uchu Madin Daikengo, or Cosmic Devil Daikengo, as it's called in the West, and sometimes also referred to as Daikengo, the Guardian of Space, is a 26-episode TV show from 1978 produced by Toei. It was directed by Akira Yahiro, who um, doesn't have any other director credits, but maybe a dozen or so storyboard credits, so not really a prolific director. The main character design was by Motoski Takahashi, Again, only a handful of other character design credits and was again mainly a storyboard artist but had directed a handful of OVAs that people in the West might have heard of including Cosmo Police Justy and Harbour Light Story. The music was by Hiroshi Susui who did music mainly on a lot of uh, 70s robot shows including Daltanius which we reviewed previously in episode 5 and the mecha design was by industry legend Kunio Okawara. The planet Imperius fights a bitter war against its enemies the Magellans, led by Lady Baracross and her robot henchman Robolian. The only hope is one of the three sons of King Empel, Prince Ryger and his friend Swordswoman Cleo, as they wander the galaxy in the robot Daikengo, determined to find a way to save their planet. Ah, <laughs> 
So now we'll do our review of episode one. And before I get into actually talking about the episode, I just want to talk about the opening credits because even before I'd actually sort of watched this episode, Daikengo has a really, really good set of opening credits. They yeah. are really, really cool. It's got a typical sort of late 70s funky opening mm-hmm. sort of soundtrack, uh, opening theme tune. And then, you know, it has these great visuals. Um, you know, the actual animation in the opening theme is really high quality. It is, yeah. You know, it gives you this first glimpse of the uh, sort of skeletal mecha. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just like, actually, yeah, I'm well up for this. Yeah, I know what you mean. I was quite excited when I saw the opening as well. Um, having not seen very much of the show before, apart from the designs, it really sort of uh, just sort of reeks of quality, the opening. Yeah. I mean, like you say, there's these there's these kind of fishbone uh, sort of enemy fighters, which are the regular Magellan Empire design, um, sort of coming towards the screen, firing the lasers. Yeah. And you get these really dynamic movements from Daikengo. There's a bit where he... I think he kicks an enemy sort of a ship or something like that. That's it, yeah. And yeah. he just kind of does a roundhouse kick on it, and it it looks really fluid. Because he's kind of chasing these Magellan sort of skeletal fish craft down what like a almost like the trench run in Star Wars. Yeah, and it's just yeah, and it just looks really really good. It just looks amazing. So you know, even before we got into this first episode, I was I was already kind of pumped for it. Yeah, just some of the key visuals that I saw on the internet as well. They show all the characters just have a bit of a different style about them, I think, as well. Mm. With the kind of um, inspiration from the past and the clothing and things like that. Yeah, yeah. So into the episode itself, we start off with the Magellan forces attacking a planet and sort of quickly get introduced to our main um, antagonist, Rebolian. And we see this world and it's very kind of like a sword and sandals type, sort Mm. of almost Roman-esque yeah. Kind of empire, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, this kind of brings a couple of things to, from sort of different time periods together. I'd say mainly Rome, but maybe a couple of other things in there too. So we see this battle going on, and then one of the princes of the Empel Empire, Zamson, he's fighting Rebolian, and uh, sort of Rebolian sort of dupes him in a sword fight with his remote control sword, ends up stabbing him in the back. Yeah. Um, and, you know, then. This sort of sad news gets passed to uh, King Empel, Samson's father, and then we get this sort of build up to the uh, legend of Daikengo. So after Samson's death, King Empel he looks to uh, using Daikengo to defeat uh, the Magellan forces, and uh, they want to use the legendary robot Daikengo to do that. And Daikengo can only be powered up every nine hundred and fifty years with the passing mm. of the Devil Star. So there's Obviously, uh, he's such a kind of legendary figure. Nobody's actually ever seen him in action. You know, he's just pretty much a statue of the people of Imperius. He is, and he's almost treated like a deity, isn't he? It's like mm, this godlike yeah. figure, um, which is a common theme in a lot of the uh, sort of seventy Super Robot shows and Super Sentai shows that God is in within these robots. Yes, absolutely. So they decide to use Daikengo and King Empel looks to who's going to pilot Daikengo. Mm-hmm. And Dulles, who's the man at arms and head of Imperius Empire's armed forces, says it should be his most senior general. But King Empel decides that it should be royalty that pilots mm-hmm. Daikengo and says it should be his youngest son, Yuga, who's the youngest brother of the fallen Samson. Mm-hmm. But Riga, who's the, the middle son, sort of thinks it should be him as, as the oldest yeah. sort of surviving brother. And then with that, the Devil Star passes over mm-hmm. and powers up Daikengo. Yeah. 
Dulles is very unhappy that Daikengo isn't being piloted by one of his uh, soldiers. Yuga heads off to go and pilot Daikengo, but you hear Riga's voice from Daikengo, and yeah. basically Riga's like, you know, done the sort of honourable thing as the older brother, and you know, Taking his younger Yuga's brother. Place. Yeah, you know, he'll put himself in harm's way. But also probably because he wants revenge against Robolian as well. Yeah. So basically, Daikengo ends up fighting the Magellan and, you know, Mecha. We see the first use of some special attacks. Robolian escapes in the small ship. Um, Daikengo transforms into its sort of space carrier version. And then Robolian sort of proposes this peace treaty with the um, Imperious Empire, mm-hmm. which Riger thinks it's a trap. And then the episode ends on the standard 70s sort of super robot narration mm. and a sort of very sort of solemn, you know, will peace yeah. ever be achieved and what's what's in store for Daikengo and Riga, mm. basically. So that's basically a, a brief mm. summary of the, the first episode. Um, as first episodes go, I think it's fairly solid. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, it's, it, it sort of ticks all the boxes, doesn't it? It reduces the characters fairly well. It's well paced. It's got um, quite a lot of intriguing elements to it. Yeah, the use of the Devil Star is a very interesting aspect of the mythology. That is something that feels quite unusual among a lot of the shows I've seen, mm. certainly. Um, and the generational thing is a very interesting aspect, like the fact that a lot of people haven't even seen Daikengo yes, um, yeah. in action. You know, like they're just kind of hoping. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. So they've got a lot of faith that this uh, sort of legend is true, really. And that's an interesting aspect to it. Yeah, I agree. I think it's quite. It's almost like. Um... A supernatural yeah. basis for the primary yeah. NECA, which is quite unusual. Um, yeah, because they it's... tend to be much more science-based. You know, if you yeah, look absolutely. at Getarobo or Mazinga mm. or something like that. Yeah, you know, especially it's... those because those are kind of like they discover something that powers the robot in those shows. Yeah, or there is, um, yeah, exactly. There's some special element that that powers it, and then there's a genius scientist that you know then uses the it to create and, yeah. to create the robots, isn't there? You know, super robot stuff. It falls into that category. category. Yeah, whereas this is completely different. You know, it's using a you know a very non-science based, and I think that falls in quite well with the Roman. You know, the Romans very much prayed to their gods. You know, Mm. like with the Greeks. You know, you had uh, Jupiter, and you know they Mm. they they worship the planets, and and they were their gods. So it kind of of falls in with that. Yeah, definitely does. And and Daikengo. being sort of referred to as a devil and being powered by the devil star sort yeah. of has supernatural connotations. I mean, he even has fangs. Yes. When yes. his mouth guard drops, he <laughs> yeah. sort of does this kind of feral scream and he has uh, he has actual fangs and kind of looks a bit um, sort of bestial, doesn't he, really? He does. And it does really create that kind of like, is it the devil? You know, is mm. it the devil incarnate? Is it a power of good or is it a power of evil? Which is very Which is much why... a theme in Messenger, isn't it? You know, is yes, he a god yeah. or is he a devil sort of thing? Yeah. And he even has the sort of bad type wings in that show. Yes, yes. Mm. So, you know, it builds up that quite well. Um, we're introduced to our main characters. You know, you kind of get the basis of the Imperious Kingdom, you mm-hmm. know, the, the hierarchy, King Empel, mm-hmm. um, his three sons, you know, Dulles and his daughter, Cleo. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it establishes all of that. We see the Magellan primary antagonist, 
Rebolian, who basically looks like a robot Napoleon, <laughs> yeah, doesn't he? He's, he's like a sort of old-fashioned robot cosplay as Napoleon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which I always find quite interesting, because it kind of mixes up its... Like, so you've got this sort of sword yeah. and sandals, which is like 2,000 mm. years ago, and then you've got this character from only 100 or yeah, exactly. know, 150 years it's ago. Like, what did they call it in, in an anachronism, where there's different history periods all yeah, jumbled together? Yeah. Pretty sure that's the word for it. <laughs> yeah. Actually, have you ever seen... Um, oh, I can't remember what it's called now. It's a, It was a recent Mecca show from, I don't know, six, seven, eight years ago. Um, it was called Nobunaga. It was by Soji oh, Karamori. Yes. Yes, I, I've I've not seen it, but I know of it. Yeah, yeah, With the that, sort of samurai theme and everything. Yeah, yeah, that really mixes up its um, different historical figures. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's really, really, really mixed up. And I, it just it just reminded me of this. It's just it's got so many. You know, it just mixes up so you know lots of different kind of um, time periods and time periods and stuff in it. You know, so uh, yeah, I, I did find that quite amusing. But um, yeah, it's good. The mecha battle was quite brief but it was you know yeah. quite interesting so you, you saw the uh the first special attacks and the first mm. transformation scene so it crammed a lot in that first episode to be honest it does and i feel like you know it's a good thing to have a little bit less action in the first episode because you mm. need to introduce the characters and have a hook and get yeah. people in- invested in the universe and things you don't want to have an all-out action episode that has no room for character stuff in the first in the first yes. sort of episode you know? absolutely yeah or strike need... a balance at least yeah, I agree. You need it needs to give you a glimpse that it's like right, a taster that makes you want to watch that second yeah. episode. So I think it does that quite well. I think so. Yeah. Like a lot of other um, late seventies sci-fi, we have the two comedy robots as well, Anakay mm. um, yeah. and Otako. Like you know, with Battlestar Galactica, Buck mm. Rogers, Star Wars. You know, I think it kind of really yeah. started with Star Wars, didn't it? But definitely, you know, all these shows in the late seventies all had the cutesy. Robot sidekick, and interestingly enough, I'm pretty sure that Star Wars was released in 1978 in Japan, and that's the yeah. same year Daikengo was airing. Yeah. So it would have been pretty new to them and fresh in their minds then. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's not a coincidence that all this um, stuff, you know, if you look at a load of 80s OVAs, you know, mm. a lot of them have the cutesy robot in it as well. Absolutely, and just so many things um, that have been influenced by American sci-fi, especially in a lot of OVAs and shorter shows and things. Yeah. You've talked about it in Retro Anime Podcast before, that there's so many references, nods and sort of jokes, and just design that is pretty much ripped off. Yeah. <laughs> <as well. laughs> yeah. Yeah. And Daikengo is no different. You know, it's completely jumped on the uh, cutesy psychic robot bandwagon as yeah. well. So let's score the episode then. I mean, I, I'm kind of in the six, seven camp with it. I think I'd it does seven. a decent job. It's not outstanding. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, it's not amazing, but it, it's more than serviceable. You know, it does the job, it yeah. produces everything well. Um, and it made me want to watch the next episode, which is exactly yeah. what you want from a first episode, really. Yeah, completely agree. It made me want to watch the second episode as well, so it completely did the job it was intended yeah. to do. So <laughs> Now we'll start to look at the rest of Daikengo and sort of talk about its plot points and its story and our sort of some of our general feelings about it. Mm-hmm. Um I'm, I have really mixed feelings about Daikengo Same. as a series. Yeah. I, you know, I really, <laughs> really, really do. It really feels like kind of like the Japanese equivalent of a cheap Saturday morning cartoon. Mm. 
know, know what you mean. I, I, it gets, it's very, it's very, very basic. It is. It's also quite inconsistent in many ways. Yeah. Which is something we'll get onto more as we talk about how the plot develops. But yeah, you're right. I mean, it's, it is sort of basic in terms of its premise. And I mentioned the um, Devil Star when we were talking about the first episode. I kind of wanted a little bit more about that. Absolutely. I wanted more about the sort of mythology. It would have been yeah. nice to have some sort of glimpse into the past. Yeah. Maybe even if it was only one episode about a previous generation's sort of experiences with Daikengo or when he went yeah. inactive last time or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Or just more about how the Devil Star and Daikengo are related because yeah. considering they both have sort of devil in the title and there's this kind of supernatural theme <laughs> like you say, there, there seems like there could have been more of a story there to tell. And I was a little bit disappointed that that didn't factor in to the plot. There is definitely a lot more story there to tell, but it mm. isn't referred to again throughout the remaining mm. 25 episodes. It's just, it happens in that, basically that sort of five or six minutes before yeah. the eye catch in episode mm. one. Yeah. And that's it. That's the whole time of the show that it's referred to. And I think yeah. it feels like a massive miss. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a real shame that, because I, I do really feel like that would have made it a much stronger series in terms of the mythology and overall kind of plot. Yeah. Definitely. And that's not, unfortunately, that's not um, the only sort of disappointment. There's good too. I mean, it is a mixed bag and that's what's frustrating about it because I feel like um, it is very inconsistent in many ways. Because the first episode does all the setup. Because normally, if you look at some of the other Super Robot shows that we've watched, typically they'll take sort of three or four episodes Mm. to introduce sort of... Extra characters, you know, Additional extra mecha, mecha sometimes. all yeah, that kind or, of stuff. Yeah, but that is literally all done in episode one. Mm. Um, yeah, you get a few, you know, Lady Barakos, you know, um, and then she Grand comes, Emperor Magellan comes later as well. Yeah, you get them a bit later, but um, and then you get um, Broyman, you know, a bit later, but you know, and that's kind of this big mystery thing, which we'll, we'll talk about separately. Yeah, but, sure. But there's very, very little extra that kind of gets introduced. Yeah. You know, the, the mm. whole premise is done in that first episode, which I it was is. kind of taken aback with, really. I was as well. I mean, I suppose you could argue that there is a bit of a drip feed into some of the mecha elements because you get the um, the other vehicles that make up Daikengo's yes, separate, yeah. separated forms later, like Daikin Caterpillar and Daikin yeah. Buggy and things like that that combine to make the ship that then turns into Daikengo. But other than that... And Bryman, the cyborg, being unveiled as a yeah. sort of new character. It's it's mainly character stuff and the sort of and you know the the actions of like the king and Imperium yeah, and yeah. the Imperious Empire, you know, that that and Robolian and Baracross and Burmajalm that drive the sort of plot forward. Yeah. Not so much new elements of the kind of story mythology and mecha coming No. Out. I mean new attacks get unveiled and stuff like that, but that's kind of pretty standard in the genre really. Yeah. Because one of my biggest problems, like in the first um, half of the series, it just doesn't go anywhere. Mm. It's really repetitive. Because like I say, you've yes. got that set up. And then every episode, it's just Rygar in Daikengo with Cleo and the robots. Mm. Just go into another planet to fight Rebolian. And that's it. And that's and literally gets away what happens. Somehow, yes, um, as they yeah. always do. Yeah, I mean, the first three episodes... Um, I would say, like, you know, episode two and three have a decent amount of plot in them. But after that, because you have in episode two, you have um, 
more about the proposal for peace. Um, yeah, yeah. Then um, Riger being hunted by his father and him trying to find out the truth as to why he's yeah. been hunted down. And then in episode three, there's all the stuff about Cleo confronting her dad's dolls. Yeah, yeah. And finding out whether he's really kind of behind the sort of plot to overthrow yeah, yeah. Uh, King Empel. So that's all quite strong. And I actually felt like, you know, those first three episodes had quite a bit to them. But then after that, you're right, it just totally like becomes repetitive and formulaic. I found the first half of the series and probably the first bit of the second half of the series quite pedestrian. Mm, yeah. I, you know, I don't think, um, and we'll talk about music separately, but I don't think the music and some of the animation helped either. Yeah. Um, you know, it was very, very repetitive. I, I really kind of, I did struggle a little bit with kind of mm. trying to maintain interest in it. Thankfully, it does pick up a little bit in places, but again, it's inconsistent. You know, it go, it spikes in sort of quality both in writing and uh, occasionally animation and sort of design and presentation and things, then it goes back down again. It's very simplistic. The whole mm. series is very, very simplistic. And that's why I kind of made the comment about it feeling like a cheap Saturday morning cartoon because mm. it kind of like, well, this genre of animation and you know this sort of cartoon thing is really, really popular. And it feels like a bandwagon. It's like, well, mm. we'll cash in on that. You know, we'll churn out a cartoon series and maybe make some toy sales off it or whatever. Yeah. You know, it, it really feels like that. And I think Akira Yahiro's inexperience as a director, because, you know, as we said, he's, he's not really done very much at all. Mm. Um, I think it's really apparent. quite evident here. It's really apparent, yeah. yeah. And it's I not mean, very skillfully handled. No, it's it's not, and it kind of just... I mean, it's only a 26-episode series. Yeah. But there's a hell of a lot of waste in those 26 episodes. Yeah. There's a lot of retreading of the same plots. Even, like, I mean, we'll get to this more when we talk about the animation, but there's a hell of a lot of recycled footage in it as well. Yeah, yeah. Even more so than you would expect for the time. But, um, yeah, those, the first half particularly is, is kind of, like, past the first three episodes, I did sort of start to think, hmm... <laughs> I'm not sure it's really going to go anywhere. Thankfully, things do pick up a bit, but uh, you know, it's it's again that inconsistency that's frustrating. Yeah, yeah. When you get a good episode and then a terrible one following it, when you start to think <laughs> things know, are going to yeah. pick up, you know. <laughs> and I think it's very, very predictable as well. You know, mm. Dulles's story and where his legions lie or yeah. his alliance lies and everything. I think that is signposted in the first episode. It is. It you is. You don't have I mean, to be a rocket scientist to work what. His no. storyline is, yeah, exactly. I mean, once he when he first appears, I think it's maybe like, I mean, he appears in the first episode, and you already know he's dodgy from the get go. Yeah, but then there's a scene, and I think it might be the second or third episode when he's talking um, to the king, and then he sort of walks away from him in the next room. Yeah, and it's, it's seemingly with an earshot, he's kind of cackling and like, laughing, and I'm yeah, thinking, this kid yeah. Is deaf. He's surely gonna hear that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, again, Bryman, his character is really predictable. Yeah, and his backstory—it's—it's it's really obvious as soon as he appears. Yeah, um, absolutely. You know, and, and I think, and that's where it's just massively simplistic. Mm. I think absolutely because it—it teases from the very beginning when Bryman appears. You know, who actually is he? He's masked. Yeah. You know, yeah. he sort of—he's kind of enigmatic. You know, he's—he sort of yeah, yeah. makes reference to things that he knows things that he shouldn't you know he's a bit of a sort of uh, mysterious character he always shows up when he's yeah at, you know at the right time to like save the day sort of thing and then obviously this plot thread comes in about who he might be yeah it's i don't know i think kids maybe struggle but as an adult it's like yeah. 
yeah. as soon as you see it, it's like you figured it out. You know? Yeah, you figure out his identity right away. And I mean, like you say, I mean, it's it's important to keep in mind that these shows, you know, were very much aimed at kids. Yeah. But then again, I mean, like, giving it its credit, it has some really good ideas in those those first um, episodes. Yeah. And it also goes to some dark places at times as well. It, it does, it, yeah. It, 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 does, it has and... the standard sort of 70s super robot fare of quite going down some pretty dark avenues. It does, and absolutely, and you know, and it's one of the points I want to say. You know, it it is a seventies super robot show, and therefore it has standard seventies super robot brutality and <laughs> and darkness in it. You know, yeah, um, you know, good examples. Episode six, where Rebellion has the firing squad. Yeah, you know, and he's got these prisoners up on a crucifix, mm. and he's got the firing squad at them. I mean, it is pretty dark. Yeah, um, it's and you know, that's less... quite a brutal episode as a whole. Episode six. Yeah, it, it is, and it, it's probably a little bit less violent than some of the other seventies super robot shows, in which we have discussed some shows where you actually see blood. Yeah, like, you know, sort of semi-frequently. I don't recall seeing any blood in Daikengo. No, there's no, there's no blood in it, but it doesn't. But it's kind still, of... it's still brutal, though. You're right. Yeah, because again, episode six. Um, there's a lot of focus on betrayal and forgiveness and stuff, you know. It's its yeah. tone is is really dark. And then episode mm. ten, there's this girl, uh, Gian, and her mother gets shot by a dying Magellan That's soldier. Strange. Yeah. You know, gets up and shoots her right in front of her. You know, it's the way it's portrayed, yeah. it's you know, it's really brutal. There's no subtlety yeah. or dressing it up at all. It's yeah. uh, and it's it's another one of those things we, we have discussed before with uh, other sort of seventy super robot shows that it can be really silly and goofy with things like Anake and Otoke. Yeah. Uh, and then it can be, like, really harsh the next moment. Yeah. I mean, there's a scene in episode six, uh, the one you were just talking about, where <laughs> all these robots kind of... All these enemy robots um, of the Magellans join together and make a kind of tornado Yeah, that yeah. chases the heroes, which is really mm-hmm. weird. It reminds me of the um, attack in Gatchaman where they all sort of stand on each other's yes, shoulders and yes, turn into it does. a it reminds, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, but it just sort of comes out of nowhere. And, you know, the heroes <laughs> are kind of running from this this tornado. It's kind of goofy. In the same episode, which has got guerrilla soldiers fighting back against the sort of rulers of the planet which have allied themselves with the Magellans, which is quite a grown-up theme. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like we've talked about before with, with the 70s stuff. It's aimed at kids, but it's you know Still, you just wouldn't see that in Western children's Yeah, definitely show, not. I mean, no, it definitely tackles some real grown-up topics um, yeah. quite early on in anime's history, really. Yeah. You know, at the time when... You know, a lot of people sort of cite uh, shows as just starting to kind of grow up a bit with things like Gundam and that, you know? Yeah, so yeah. It is very much still aimed at kids, but again, yeah. those adult themes creep in. Yeah. Which is quite interesting, I think. Yeah, and, you know, there are some really good episodes that I want to talk about as well. Um, and some of those themes are, are quite evident in these as well. So, um, episode 16, where it starts off with these migrating space birds. Mm. Um it's a really nice idea, and it's quite actually animation in it's really well done. Um, mm. That actually has a kind of real beauty to it, yeah, it does, um, yeah. and a nice message. And they, you know, it looks amazing mm-hmm. because in that episode they go to this uh, like Middle Eastern type planet, yeah, um, and there's a war yeah. over oil. You know, the situation with the oil crisis of the seventies. You know, that mm. episode is very much talking about that sort of world geopolitical situation it's oh, yeah. the commentary on it 
so you know, say it's a kids show, but it has those heavy themes. Yeah. In it, as you know, so um... it certainly does. Yeah, I mean, going back to what we were saying before about the sort of anachronisms and the kind of the ideas, the different time periods that are mashed together, it is very much a kind of pastiche in the Middle East, and I think it's even got the planet's got a title that sounds like Arabia. Yeah, something something like Aradiba or something like that. It is. It is literally (laughs) sort of meant to be, you know, an Arabic type name. Absolutely. Yeah, and and going also back to uh, discussing um, the influence of Star Wars. In that episode, there's a sort of hovering ship that yes, looks really yeah. like Luke's land speeder. Yes, yes, there is, yeah. And I believe there's also a planet called Kessel, which is a planet mentioned in Star Wars twice. Yeah, the Kessel Run. Isn't yeah, it? the Kessel Run yes. and the Spice Mines of Kessel. Yeah. As well, yeah. So, yeah, they, so, they, I think this must have came out around a similar time that Star Wars was released, because I'm sure it was 1978 in Japan. And it, this would have been airing in some of the same months that the movie came out. Yeah, it's definitely influenced by Star Wars, mm. um, and obviously Tatooine, Tatooine as well, the desert, the desert planet. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> Sixteen also has some really nice cutscenes in it. It was actually, mm. you know, it was actually a really, really good um, episode. Episode eighteen as well, where it has this ghostly planet Atlan and this computer-controlled monster. That's a really interesting one because that's very, very much a departure from a lot of the, the sort of the episodes we've been used to up to that point. Yes, it is. I mean, there's no real mecha monster in it. The threat is the planet's self-defense system. Yeah. So it's not got a traditional sort of mecha monster to fight. It's the fact that these sort of beings are being kept in cryogenic storage and it's the defense system that protects their, their sort of life. Yeah. It activates. And then Rebellion and Riger both have to fight the enemy. Yeah, that's right. So it's a nice departure. It is. It's quite a nice, uh, interesting take on it. I mean, it's actually quite a scary episode as well. You know, it's this computer. It's that early, you know, and a lot of sort of late 60s and 70s sci-fi, you know, had that thing of robot or computer threat. You know, yeah. with, you know, the computers were becoming very prominent. And mm. there was this, you know, the, even then they were talking about, you know, AI and the threat of AI and, and mm. all the rest of it. And will the computers take over? Yeah, and stuff this episode, like 2001 and Saturn V and things like that. Exactly, those kind of films. And, um, you know, this kind of very much, very much builds on that. Um, mm. You know, the bit where the decayed bodies fall out of the sort of the cryogenic chambers and stuff. You know, it's really, yeah. really, you know, when, when Cleo's destroying the computer, it's it's really quite... Almost it's harrowing, harrowing, you know. It's, yeah, it's, it is. It's, it's, it does feel like you know something out of a horror movie, and it's very much so. Yeah. Yeah, and then the, the final one that that really stood out to me was episode twenty-one. So there's a bit of a theme here. These are very much in the the last sign of third of the series. You know, mm. I think up until that point, it'd been a very very poor show. You know, as you said, it does get better at the end, mm. and it has these one of episodes. And episode twenty one with Batmecha, which I thought was mm-hmm. really cool, um, amusingly called Batbone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I did have a chuckle at that. I couldn't help that. <laughs> Rebellion sets this trap to snare Professor Gunther and and Bryman because we haven't talked about Professor Gunther, but we should point out that he's an ally of Bryman because he's basically the the guy who designs the enemy Mecha. Yeah, and he's basically like a kind of inside man that's helping Bryman. Yeah, uh, I don't think we we mentioned that previously, just for sort of uh, the sake of continuity. Yeah, <laughs> some context to him. Again, it hits some dark places because mm. Rebellion kind of captures Bryman and tortures him. Yeah, and there's this thing about his grave and and the sort of Empel and Riga sort of crying over him. And at the end, there's this shot of this his gravestone floating through space. You know, and it's. 
Yeah. You know, it's kind of really like, oh, wow. You know, it's... Uh... Yeah, because, um, you know, again, without sort of getting into the spoilers, you know, there's there's a lot of things about Brynans, the identity. And by this point, there's nobody in this audience who doesn't... To, you know, I mean, it actually is yeah. revealed it by now. <laughs> but long before this, you know, we we, we knew clearly who he was. Yeah. But it's, um, but it's really interesting the way picks it up and runs with it and then does something good with it. Yeah. After so much meandering and yes. sort of back and forth, I find it really frustrating how Riga constantly second guesses whether Bryman is good or not when he should already know that. Yeah, yeah. It's some quite, it's quite obvious, right. yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's kind of like, well, he's helped you countless times. It would be a bit ridiculous if he turned out to be an enemy <laughs> agent now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, especially when he always turns up when Riga really needs. needs him as well. Yeah, yeah. exactly, yeah. And um, there's all this stuff uh, to do with... I mean, t- it just feels quite wasted for Bryman's character. Another yeah. thing that feels quite wasted, which occurs a little bit earlier than where we've gotten to at the moment, is the character of Sabu, the sort of Earth boy. Yeah. You know, every time there's an episode with Earth, it seems like it's going to be something really significant to the yeah. overall plot. And they kind of wasted a little bit, and it feels a yeah. bit ancillary. You know, it doesn't really go anywhere until close to the end. Yeah, and I've got that down in my notes. The Earth episodes, I thought, felt really clumsy and unnecessary. Mm. Really unnecessary. Like you say, they just didn't quite fit in. It was kind of like... I mean, Sabu's a decent character, but they don't do too much with him, really. No, they don't. It kind of feels a bit like he's kind of uh, betrayed a bit by the series. I mean, he's a typical plucky kid... Um, yeah. You know, with a bit about, we'll talk more about that when we get to the characters. But certainly, it felt like his role in the series could have been a lot better. Yeah, and it's a bit of a shame, really. So it feels like an afterthought. It was kind of like the director thought, "Oh, do you know what? We should have some scenes on Earth that mm. you know this sort of alien sort of galaxy, you know, yeah, it comes out and reaches far enough and touches our own galaxy and our mm. own planet, sort of thing." And it it felt very very shoehorned in. Yeah, I mean. It does feel very much like they had that idea later and it wasn't originally part of the vision for the show, which is, again, a bit of a shame. Um, and Because you expect it to be like, you know, this kind of quite earth-shattering series of events that's going to yeah. go somewhere plot-wise. And really, they just end up going to Earth, meeting Sabu, stopping a plan from Robolia yeah. and then going back to space again and leaving him behind until close to the end when he becomes a little bit more significant, but not really. Because <laughs> <laughs> those scenes with Earth... To be honest, they feel like they were aimed at like the child audience or the, yeah. the younger sort of somebody who would you know. identify with Sabu's character. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it was you know a very, I say, shoehorned and, and forced to kind of mm. tick that box and to have that because there's no other really sort of childlike characters in that. But it's yeah. like we'll give we'll give them something to identify with and. And that's where, you know, the writing doesn't feel very good. I I think they had very, very few ideas, which is why it feels very pedestrian. um, Mm. And they kind of got their stuff together. Because in the later episodes, they start to rely on flashbacks a lot as well. Mm. You know, it's just like they had a very, very thin idea. And they managed to get whatever funding or, you know, managed to convince whatever TV station to like to go with it and fund the TV show. And then Mm. they kind of stretch those few thin ideas out over 26 episodes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's one episode in particular, I think it's the one you just referred to, where there's so much reuse of footage via flashback. It's like they built the whole episode around it. It's not strictly speaking a recap episode, because it has a new plot. It has, like, new events in it, but it has about three major flashbacks. 
Yeah. Um, and then it has um, mecha battles, which are almost entirely recycled footage as well. Yeah, because some of the later episodes are almost like recap episodes. Even though they're um, kind of not, because they have a new story in them. Yeah, they have a little really bit odd. new in them, but they have so much flashback in them that they're almost yeah. recapping. And they're only a few episodes apart as well. Um, it's it's very, very odd. Because as a standard, your recap episode tends to have the characters reminiscing about something. And then it brings in the sort of footage, but you get a bit of new animation, but it's generally yeah. a framing device to show you what's happened yes, before. Absolutely. But in this, it's like the characters have a flashback and remember something which is central to the plot of this new episode. Yeah. And then in the same episode, they go one step further by recycling footage that's supposed to be a new event, which yeah. is just kind of like, <laughs> what? I've never ever seen that before, to be honest, yeah. in all my years of, uh, of watching anime. It's, uh, it's quite an odd one. It is an odd one, and again, like I think it does come back layers to layers of sort of uh, reuse. Yeah, <laughs> sort of stacked upon one another. Yeah, I know it's very strange, and I th- again, I think it comes back to that director's lack of experience. You know, Possibly, I think it, yeah. it feels like a very, very experienced team because it also, like a lot of seventies super robot shows, it has some really somber engines as well. You know, yeah, really, you know, really, really does. heavy, somber, really doom and gloom type engines. You know? mm. I mean, the one that springs to my mind is the episode with the uh, Munkeras, which are like a kind of monkey-like sort of creature. Yes. Um, well, yeah. it's kind of like a mixture between a monkey and a dog, isn't it? Yeah. But it turns out that uh, the Magellan, some Magellan scientist has been experimenting on these little cute monkey creatures and making them into cyborgs. And when they reach maturity, they kind of turn into these big sort of fanged beasts and yeah. hunt down humans and kill them. <laughs> and they, and they, they meet this little cute monkey that they nickname Chibi. And they basically sort of befriend him, get yeah. a vet for him. And they're freaked out by the fact that everywhere they go on the planet, people like run and scream from these little cute, from this little <laughs> cute monkey. Like, why is this? They learn the truth, and then um, they, they sort of save his life. The uh, the parents turn up and battle. One of the parents turns up and battles the other creatures. <laughs> but then at the end, uh, Riga's like, "All right, well, would you like to come into space and sort of live with us and sort of live abo- aboard our ship?" Yeah. And he declines because he knows he's going to turn into this kind of savage predator and kill his friends. <laughs> yeah. So you're like, that's really dark. Yeah. And, and at the end, it shows you Riga sort of looking all kind of like somber. Yeah. It shows you Chibi running, you know, in this, in this <laughs> like sort of free kind of through the sort of uh, land. And you just think like, God, that is a really bleak ending. But it does have a little bit of a sense of hope to it because the announcer says something like, will Chibi be able to resist his destiny? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. He says, like, Chibi, resist your destiny, fight. Fight against yeah, your fate. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Yeah, standard kind of narration for a 70s mm. show. Because there's another one, I think it's episode 14, where they end up reminiscing over this um, robotic girl, mm-hmm. uh, Roscart, that was created by one of um, Rebolian's professors who gets shot by Rebolian. You know, this girl gets shot protecting her. She sees him like a father figure, mm. um, and she gets shot by Rebolian protecting the professor. Um, but then it has this again. It has this kind of voiceover and stuff, and it's just you know, it's just the music and like it, the way it fades out. You know, it's just the like really sad I want to go hang myself. You know, <laughs> <laughs> and we we talked about this with the um, Daltanius review. Is that some of these episodes end on a really sombre note, then you get this quite jolly end theme it straight seem, away afterwards, yeah. <laughs> after seconds, after a really sort of sad piece of music, and it's just kind of jarring and funny, you know, watching it with modern eyes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's very very odd, you know. And I think all those things we've just talked about there, I think, really show where you know this show is really confused. 
Mm, it's um, very it, totally get all over the place. I, I know I know a lot of seventies are, are sort of tonally mixed a little bit, mm. but this one in particular feels it's very mixed. It's all over the shop. It, I, yeah. I really it doesn't really quite know what it wants to do. It's got an identity crisis, really, hasn't it? It's... It has, yeah. <laughs> because the pendulum swing on it with mm. Anike and Otake as well, and some of the goofiness that goes on the pendulum mm. swing in tone through various episodes is enormous. Um, mm. it's, it really you know, is, it's, yeah. It's tragic really, really sort strange. of drama one episode, <laughs> and then like you know, complete goofball antics the next. It's yeah, yeah. And I mean, yeah, we it's... talk, we've talked about that before. Like you say, there are other shows that are are tonally sort of different but this one is really out there in, the, in terms of that. yeah it is really Definitely. really out there yeah one of the other things i kind of just want to touch on a little bit is um is really kind of again for a show aimed at sort of young children is really how overly sexualized cleo and yes. Barakos are mm, they, very much so i was going to talk to that more when we came to the characters yeah but yes. yeah we'll talk a little bit more in but, detail yeah, about I mean, that but i just wanted to say at this point you know talking about the series as a whole absolutely those yeah. two characters again it's just it's just kind of really odd much more than i've ever seen in a 70s yeah. show there's a villain in yataman that's that's quite sort of sexualized the sort of female villain but it's kind of tame compared to this though yeah. she wears skimpy outfits and things but i wouldn't say it's the episodes that i've seen it doesn't particularly kind of linger on those details or yeah, show yeah. or show her legs or cleavage or anything like that closer yeah Whereas this show very much does, which we'll very talk much, about later. Very much does, yeah. And it's, its use of it is quite interesting in terms of the story as well. Yeah. <laughs> but I was kind of really taken aback because it was, was like, it's really overt as well. It's very, very... much so. It's part of the kind of story as well with two character relationships which yeah, we get to. Yeah, yeah. It is head and shoulders above other shows that I've seen yeah. in terms of that. It's almost like, you know, the creative staff were kind of like, they had, they wanted to create one show yeah and the the studio or the production company or the tv station were like well it's aimed at this market you know it's going to be shown at eight thirty on a saturday morning when eight-year-olds are going to watch it you know that's the market we're aiming for here and they're kind of like damn because i really wanted to get some boobies in it or, you know sort of thing <laughs> and um and it kind of you know and it's like oh we wanted to make something like zambot three you know yeah um, and that's and that's where you know they've got I don't know. That's where it's really mixed. That's where it really doesn't it know what it wants to be. I can kind of imagine, like, sort of the meetings at uh, at the studio, and, and you know, like <laughs> all these different ideas and yeah. really interesting conversations going on about uh, what direction to take it in. And I can just see some people really being frustrated with by the fact that their ideas didn't make it, or they only got to do one episode <laughs> like that. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like it almost like well. We know we've got to produce a show for this audience, but we're just going to see how far we can get away with it. Yeah. What about the dads watching? Let's put in something for them. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's very confused. Um, Very much so, yeah. It doesn't do a great job. The final episode is incredibly choppy, isn't it? It was kind of like... I remember watching this episode thinking, do you know what? We've only got about 10 minutes to go. Yeah, I know. Are we actually going to end it? You know... It reminds me of like, you know, there's so many times I've watched a film over the years where there's been hardly any of the running time left and I've been very conscious of that and I've thought, this isn't going to have a proper ending, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> this isn't going to resolve things, is it, in any meaningful way? And some TV series that you've invested a lot of time into where you think, all right, the final episode's going to be pretty bad, isn't it? 
<laughs> and uh, yeah. that is kind of the feeling that I got with this. I mean, yeah, yeah. the last two episodes kind of form a two-parter of sorts. Yes, yeah. With the sort of discovery of this um, lighthouse that is kind yeah. of like, if it's destroyed, it'll trap the Magellans in their kind of uh, part of, their sort of dimension in their pocket of space, if you like. Yeah, yeah. And so the heroes set out to do exactly that. And then, you know, um, we get Grand Emperor Magellan turning up to attack Daikengo directly. And that's that's kind of like, you know, the sort of basic sort of, you know, finale, if you like. Yeah. But it, it clumsily shoehorns in lots of different things, which, you know, are really cack-handed. I mean, there's an episode where there's these people who want to protect this element that they produce on their planet. Yeah. Um, and it makes a call back to that in, like, the last episode, where it turns out that Yuga has gotten some of this material that's used to make explosives from that planet. Yeah. Which was a previous plot point. And he's made this missile out of it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I was just going to and, come on to that. Yeah, yeah. And, and basically it comes out of nowhere. And it's not been alluded to that they got this material previously. It was, like, kind of throwaway <laughs> plot point of prior (laughs) and when Daikengo is grabbed by Magellan because he does actually turn up in space as a kind of sort of giant figure and he launches this missile and frees Daikengo which is just like proper plot MacGuffin (laughs) (laughs) it really does sort of feel like they thought oh well you know this we've got that uh, planet where they produced explosives previously let's let's make use of that yeah, it's um, yeah, it's really clumsy. It just chops along really quickly because it it does all that bit with the missile in uh-huh. like the first half of the episode, and it still hasn't really kind of resolved anything. That you know the fight is still going on. You know, Rebellion and Riga are still kind of just about yet to really face off, sort of thing. Yeah, and you're like, hang on, we're at the eye catch now, and you still haven't, yeah, you know, kind of fought or resolved anything. You haven't even sort of tied anything up at this point yeah i mean there's a lot of shows that by that point the battle is actually over and it's just character stuff for the last half of the episode um you know i've seen loads of shows like that we're not necessarily all mecha shows but but certainly um i've seen a lot of shows where everything's resolved in the first half because they had quite a lot of the final battle in the previous episode and then there's just stuff about the characters kind of celebrating and going on their way and deciding what they're going to do with their lives in the second half yeah (laughs) And then all of a sudden, literally in the final few minutes, it's kind of, you know, the battle's over, various characters die that I'm not going to sort of state. Yeah. And it's like, well, you know, and at the very end, King Empel's like, well, yeah, well done, Riga. Um, You know, good job. <laughs> but the thing is that, that really bothers me about it is that there's... I mean, I won't, we won't spoil which characters die, but I will mention one that doesn't die that you would kind of expect i mean feel free to skip over this for spoilers but when magellan turns up in space bryman appears and fires an arrow directly into his eye yeah and weirdly there's no end to the confrontation it cuts away to the victory celebrations yeah so so basically until a later comment is made that grand emperor magellan could still come back yeah you don't actually know that bryman's killed him because it is literally he gets an arrow in the eye it cuts to the victory celebrations that quickly. Yeah. And you don't know whether he's... You know he's been defeated, kind of, but you don't know he's been killed. Yeah. And then there's this kind of bit where they're, they're talking about the victory and, oh, well, you know, Magellan could come back and threaten the universe again. Yeah. Uh, or a new threat could come. 
So it's like, yeah. well, what was the point of not having that finality to the series when there could be a new threat? Why didn't you get rid of the old threat? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know, because it goes off with the, you know, this narration and you've got Rygar, Daikengo and Bryman, you know, protect the galaxy sort of thing, exactly as, as you say. And it's, it's like, well, hang on. Have you defeated him or haven't you defeated him? You know, it's very, very inconclusive. It's only the fact that uh, one of the characters says, well, if Grand Emperor Magellan returns or there's another threat, then we'll be ready for them sort of thing. So yeah. that that kind of is the only thing that clues you in that Magellan is not actually dead. Yeah. But it's just really weird to not even show, you know, him kind of... It doesn't really show him writhing in pain after getting an arrow in the eye and being like, ah, oh, you have defeated me. <laughs> there's none of that. It's, yeah, again... I, you don't I, see him fleeing or anything like that. I think it's just another example of the poor writing in this show. Mm. I yeah. Think it, you know, it just... They kind of had some flimsy ideas. Mm. Um, you know, whether they were inexperienced or just not very capable, I don't know. I think maybe it, there's some time constraints as well, as we've talked about with other shows. I mean, yeah. haven't designed all that stuff, come up with stories and that when it's a show that's airing, you know, week yeah. by week. And, and the fact that... Just so much work went into a lot of these shows. Maybe that's partly responsible for the release of footage yeah. later on. I had that exact feeling as well. I, I had the feeling that they'd got to like the final episodes and thought, oh, actually, we we maybe it feels like this wasn't storyboarded, mm. you know, it because it doesn't feel like there was a lot written out. To or maybe some episodes were and some weren't. Possibly. Some weren't because the ending. It kind of feels they got to the end. They got into the final episode. They didn't really know how they were going to end it when they were making it and then it overruns through the first sort of half and into the second half you know and maybe and maybe they'd animated something that was actually maybe like 30 minutes long or 40 minutes long and they're like oh, do you know what we've got to cut this down to 21 minutes mm. um and that's why it feels so choppy because it was like do you know what we need to skip this along and, and wrap this up so which is why mm. you end only get that real sort of conclusion or the ending literally in the final minutes of the last episode yeah absolutely i sort of feel like maybe it is a case of the people making it felt like it was more like a product to be kind of you know just yeah. a, a project to be completed and rushed out and it wasn't a passion project particularly yeah. whereas i feel like another very 70s show like daltanius you know is is a fantastic show that has some pacing issues and it has a few issues in terms of story and writing but it just tells an overall much stronger story yeah yeah and that's where I made that opening comment on this. You know, it feels like a cheap Saturday morning, mm. just turf Especially it out. Especially with the reuse of footage, which American yeah. shows in the era were very much well known for as well. Yeah, yeah. I can't add much more to it than that. I, you know, I it's think just it's just a frustrating experience, isn't it? Really, it was frustrating. Yeah, because you get you get flashes of greatness, and some of the the great use of some of the typical seventy super robot tropes, like the really dark episodes and yeah. dealing with some really adult themes like rebellion and guerrilla fighters and you know like all sorts of stuff about uh you know i mean there's that episode with chibi where he's trying to defy his fate and yeah. all that sort of thing you know there's there's all sorts of stuff that's like real gold in it yeah which makes us feel bad about kind of giving it a poor rating but at the same time it's just not cohesive at all no 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 and i've never and i haven't actually struggled with the series in quite some time i would say that I mean, I generally always pick stuff I know I'm pretty much going to like when I'm viewing stuff like, you know, for the podcast. But I can honestly say there's not been very much that we've watched on the podcast that I've not enjoyed. Yeah. Um, It's generally been some of the sort of more kind of spin-off-y things like OVAs or 
yeah, in the case yeah. of Macross, the sort of music video compilation, things like that that aren't really important to the story. Yeah, yeah. Or to an overall story. And this one, unfortunately, is just kind of... Yeah, I did struggle yeah. with points. When we talked about the first episode and that kind of promise and excitement mm. that the opening credits created... And the whole you know. mythology thing with the Devil Star, really interesting again, you know, it's yeah. it just not really followed up on, unfortunately. No, by the time we got sort of caught way through, all that kind of optimism had well and truly gone, you know, mm. it was just like, you know, I was just, I was really struggling with it, really, really struggling with it, so... Mm. Uh, so I think I've said everything I kind of want to say about the show as a mm. whole there. We'll move on and talk about the characters and some of the mecha design and that in more detail now. Excellent. So now we'll have a look at some of the characters and we'll kind of start with our main protagonist, Riger. Mm-hmm. Um, he's kind of like your typical headstrong, heroic sort of main protagonist, isn't he? Mm. Himself as... Was it a rowdy wandering star? <laughs> Something yeah. like that. And in thing to proclaim yourself. <laughs> yeah, he's kind of, I mean, he's rebellious from the very beginning and obviously he steals Daikengo and kind of, although he's kind of motivated a little bit by revenge in the beginning, he does grow as a character. And I like that. I mean, the fact that he actually has a go at um, those characters in one of the uh, episodes that are looking for revenge against their sort of um, former kind of rulers who've allied with um, the Magellans. And he basically yeah. tells them he won't be part of the fight if it's for revenge. He's matured yeah, a little bit. That's episode, episode six. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah, episode six. That one. Yeah, because as I mm. say, he he kind of refuses to act out of revenge, doesn't he? He's yeah. doing it. He's very self righteous. Mm. He is, Riger, you know, and that's why this kind of sense of, like I say, he is kind of. Um, He's a little bit hot headed. He's a little bit hot headed, but not to the He's, degree of some other mega protagonists. He got no, a fun one. <laughs> he is hot headed. <clears throat> he is hot headed, and you know he you know he jumps in Daikengo to protect Yuga, and that's you know where this sort of sense of righteousness and duty. comes from a bit, you know, and mm. duty and everything as well, because he's doing this for the sort of good of the empire. And, Absolutely, and everything, you know, he's he's the savior of the empire. He does lose his temper quickly as well. I mean, there's that one. I think it's episode three where he. He takes it out on uh, the two robots, doesn't he? Mm, he yeah. On Anike and Otake. You know, he's, he's frustrated after he gets attacked and he stomps about and ends up kicking them about. <laughs> yeah. Oh, he does actually, he's actually quite uh, derisory towards the two robots in general. He's, he's yeah, quite often yeah. slags them off when, they, when they're sort of goofing around and, uh, and fighting because they do frequently fight with each other like two young siblings, yeah. don't they? <laughs> Got each other in a headlock, sort of hitting each other and things like that all the time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and always trying to outdo each other and who's going to pilot this and who's going to yeah. pilot that and, and everything, aren't they? So, but um, I mean, but Riger, um, Riger actually dislikes fighting. I mean, he hates yeah. violence, really. And he, he kind of only fights when he needs to. Yeah. And he does almost try to avoid it at times. Mm. Um, but when the fight's there and the fight needs to be had to stop Rebellion mm-hmm. and the Magellan army then he you know he's straight into the fight um, yeah you know so uh he, he also has great integrity as well uh, mm. i think um episode 10 where you know this character jian who's um you know we talked about who sees her mother get shot by yeah. a, a magellan soldier mm-hmm. uh, at the start rygar's mother goes to she hasn't seen him and she's worried about him and she goes to find him and she lands on the planet and because Jian's lost 
her mother, he's like, well, no, um, you know, I'm not going to see my mother out of some sort of loyalty or... Yeah, you know, that's right, uh, yeah. Uh, he's like, she's just has seen her mother killed before her eyes. It wouldn't be right yeah. to go and enjoy time seeing, seeing my uh, mother. Yeah. It's just doesn't feel right to us. So he kind of watches her from afar, doesn't he? And sort yes. of sees her that way, but doesn't actually go and speak to her. Because that's the yeah. episode where there's like, there's some sort of event that happens every so many years or every year on the on the Imperius calendar where they go to this yeah. planet. And he knows, she knows he'll be there. So yeah. she goes there and he intends to meet her. But then after those events, he's kind of like, well, I can't in all good conscience do that. No, with, that's With right. her mother you know, lying dead. Exactly, and you know, it's 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 this integrity he has, doesn't he? Because he's, yeah. he's like he has these beliefs. He knows what's right and wrong, and he sticks by that. And he and he won't be deterred, or all you know, he won't alter his path or his thinking, mm. or whatever. no matter what anyone says. I mean, like Bryman sort of like scolds him on several occasions about his yeah. about his actions and things. But Bryman does come to the kind of realization later in the series that he has changed quite a bit and grown as a character. And that's yeah. one of the best things about the series is probably that there is a bit of growth to Riga's character for mm. me. I think he's quite a decent protagonist despite a lot of other misgivings I've got about the show. He kind yeah. of feels a bit like an old-fashioned knight in some ways. Mm. I mean, and also obviously they've got the sabres as well which they get out of the belt which are kind of like old-school <laughs> sort of swords. It's kind of weird that whole thing about the swords actually because they're sort of like energy weapons that materialise into the hand but they also come out of the belt. How does that work? Yeah, it's, I know. It's, it's a bit weird, that isn't it? It's, but it's a bit a... confused. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, going back to Riga though, I do think that they did, um, you know, give him a bit of a character arc. You know, it's it's weak compared to some other shows, but he certainly does grow, and he is like he, he does. Yeah, that that I think they thought out reasonably well. Mm. Um, where he starts in episode one as kind of this rash, impetuousness mm. Um, mm. character quick to sort um, of anger and to jump and put himself in the firing line yeah. to help other people perhaps not perhaps a bit too recklessly yeah um you know in this short temper which we mentioned you see early on but then he grows and you, you see how he you know puts the the, the bigger battle above himself and, mm. and everything else you know the bigger picture you know and at the end you know he's he's fully sort of realized as this kind of hero of the the empire and that actually he's not what he needs to do is actually carry on protecting the empire and, and yeah. not kind of rest on his laurels or whatever. So, because um, Bryman yeah. talks to him a lot about sacrifice, doesn't he, and about how you mm. need to know when let people sacrifice themselves and kind of enable you to move forward, and you've got to take that death. Yeah, and those 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 people's sacrifices, and you've got to accept people's decisions, and you know, kind of honor them, I guess, in a way. Yeah, and this kind of you know ties in with Cleo who we'll talk about next mm. but it's like does he or doesn't he have any romantic feelings for Cleo yeah it's it's not very clear that because yeah with Cleo like she clearly she clearly likes him yeah but there's and not and I think he clearly likes her yeah but it's it does sort of uh, it does show that but it doesn't kind of underline it at any point yeah. either really I like the fact that Cleo is portrayed as quite a strong character as well I mean, she's capable with a sword and she's not kind of second yeah. fiddle to Riga in terms of her ability to fight. And yeah. she's intelligent as well. I mean, she she holds her own and kind of has one-on-one battles with the main villains like Barakross and also uh, Rebellion as well. Yeah. But I mean, in episode four, she sort of intro- infiltrates the Magellan base and kicks like 
you know, all kinds yeah. of arse before she gets captured. Yeah, yeah. Um, even though the odds are like totally against her. But I mean, she also nearly beats Robillion at one point, but he uses a, a sly trap to win, doesn't he? Yeah. Because yeah. he can't sort of fight fair. But yeah, I mean, she, she is portrayed as quite a sort of strong female character in quite an early show, and I like that. I think that's quite that's quite good, you know. But she she doesn't get used always to the best. Like, no. To the sort no, of plot's doesn't. best advantage. I mean, the, the early episodes she does when she confronts her dad about his treachery and everything. Yeah, yeah. But as the series goes on, she's just there as a kind of teammate for Raga, really. I think the portrayal of her struggle with what her father's doing, and then when that bit of the story gets resolved and, and how it affects her, there's a few episodes where she understands what she's worked out what's going on, and, and then she's kind of struggling with that herself, and then mm. when it gets resolved, and then how she feels about that, and then some other scenes where there's this kind of loss or she goes to yeah. a planet, and, and she realises this... There's this hole now. She sees a child mm. with their with father, her parents, and then yeah. she, she, yeah, you know, and she realizes now that she, her father is dead, and she hasn't got that anymore. And that's mainly in the first half of the series. Mm. For her, yeah. that is really, really good. Yeah, it is. Um, yeah. But then in the second half of the series, you're right. She kind of falls into the action sidekick. Yeah, kind I mean, of she's always trapped, shown to be capable, she? but uh, and you know, that's I suppose that was kind of progressive for the time, but but certainly um, she does kind of eventually fall into that psychic category i mean it's interesting that both the sort of heroes have serious dad issues as well yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know empel at the beginning of the series issues in order for his son to be captured if he doesn't uh, give up daikengo and he spends yeah. a lot of the other series kind of you know winning his dad round and proving himself to him <laughs> and uh, cleo's dad is just you know he's not he's not shown to be completely evil you know he's he's got his reasons and things but he is like a sort of treacherous character you know as we just said, you know, she's very capable, and I think that's very fitting of as Dulles is the man at arms of the yeah. the empire. He's the, kind of the man at arms and war correspondent and advisor in war as well, isn't he? Yeah, so, you know, he's the of the imperious empire. He's, um, you know, it's very fitting that actually his daughter is this, you know, his only child is this very very capable warrior. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, it kind of stands to reason that he would have taught her a thing or two. <laughs> yeah, but you know, going back to the thing between um her and Riger as well because that end of episode four they you know they really make eyes at each other mm. much to Anike and Otake's amusement but mm. it's hinted at a couple of times I, I, it's like I really genuinely thought their relationship was yes. going to go a bit I develop it. a bit further romantically that's, that's I really kinda, really really did that's kind of what I meant by the fact it's it's sort of alluded to but it's never like underlined in terms yeah. of there's no progression is what i meant to say yeah you know there's there's no evolution of the relationship it just kind of occasionally is a reminder that they might have feelings for each other but that's as far as it goes really yeah i kind of like expected the, a kiss or something at the end but no yeah exactly that's exactly <laughs> what i thought because then kind of like in the last five episodes or so five six last quarter of the series it's just kind of like not mentioned or referred to at all. It's kind of put under the carpet, isn't it? For yeah, and I was really surprised, and I was expecting them to be honest. My, you know, thought as the series developed and you saw those bits go on was ultimately you'd see them get married at the end. That's how yeah. I thought this would end. I thought the last half of the last episode would be their wedding. Yeah, especially with it having a bit of a sort of royal theme and about being about yes. the, the successor to the throne. You kind of yes. expected that she would become, you know, his kind of queen or something. Yes, but, uh, exactly. Or at least a princess or something like that, you know. 
but it, yeah. it just doesn't go in that direction unfortunately and there isn't really any resolution it just gets swept under the carpet <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like so much else in this show yeah, yeah. It's, the carpet um, you're walking on with this show is incredibly bumpy. <laughs> <laughs> it's got bodies underneath it and all sorts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's one of those things. It's in the characters, and and the other thing I want to talk about finally, just with with Riger and Cleo, is just their hairstyle. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what is going which on? Which is with bizarre. It is absolutely like loads of the heroes have really big hair. Yeah. Like and. It, and I, I wonder if that was alluded to with Samson as well. You know, it sounds like Samson, <laughs> you know, from the Bible. Yes, the bigger yeah. your hair, the more invincible you are. <laughs> but their hair is like this great big thing on top with then like this big sort of mullet, which goes yeah. all the way down their back. Mm. Um, it's just really bizarre. It's a really odd hairstyle. It's I've kind heard, of gravity I mean, defying, isn't it? It's... <laughs> it's... <laughs> I mean, I've seen big hair in anime, but I've never seen quite that style before. Yeah. I don't think I've seen it since, to be honest. You no, know. I don't. I can't recall him seeing that. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of uh, big head sort of uh, girls in their eighties anime and stuff, but I've never seen anything like that even as far back as the seventies. No. It's just, I mean, it I is don't know really, what, really, what really product they use, but it's. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> and in the end, the, the very final thing I just want to talk about with Claire, we, we alluded to this um, at the end of the sort of main review section, but. You know, and we'll talk about this more when we we talk about Lady Barracos. But again, her sexualization, that mm. outfit with that little bit of sort of side breast showing, it's just yeah, it's just kind of odd. It's very you know. odd for a kids' show. I mean, it really is. It's it sort of yeah. sticks out massively <laughs> in more ways yeah. than one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> for, for our female it's just listeners, odd, I you know, it's just it's just her outfit is just yeah, it's. It is very sort of bizarre. revealing and kind of odd for uh, a very odd choice for a show aimed yeah. at the family, definitely. We'll move on to Bryman, kind mm-hmm. of keeping it within that bit. Um, I always feel Bryman is very underdeveloped. Definitely, yeah. Um, as a I mean, character. Mm, it's, the thing is, I mean, they should have made a lot more of his character in general. They should have, you know... The intrigue with him isn't particularly strong past a couple of episodes in. You know, you're, you're pretty sure yeah. from the beginning, really, that you know who he is. But then, without giving away his identity, I mean, there's a scene where um, where Riga says, oh, I've saw, seen that sword technique somewhere before. Yeah. And you're like, well, it's, yeah, it's it's kind of, it's, <laughs> even from that point, it's looking kind of obvious. And and he's, he's also, his design, I mean, he looks kind of goofy as well, I think, with that stupid oh. horse sled thing. Yeah, I was going to say the, the des- his design really, really bothered me. Yes, his um, space scooter, as I've written it down in my notes, <laughs> because that's what it looks like. He stood on this stupid thing. It looks like he's riding a step-through scooter. Yeah, it kind um, of reminds us of a sort of child's like hobby horse sort of yeah. thing, you know. And in his design, just in general, his kind of costumes not exactly awe-inspiring. It seems mismatched no. and sort of weird. Like from a and that was the first thing that bothered me about him is his mask mm. and that yeah. stupid gaping roar, which just looks, I don't know, really bizarre. Every time he was on screen with that <laughs> mask on, I was just, I was completely distracted. It just looks really yeah. odd and mismatched and completely like bizarre, you're right. And but going back to his character though, because we started to talk about his design quite a lot, he's just not used as well as he could be. I mean, 
he's intriguing in some ways, you know, the way he kind of shows up and he always knows what's going on and the fact that he's, he's got the, the inside man in Dr. Gunther. And a little yeah. bit about him and Dr. Gunther's relationship, which again could be developed more, yeah. um, is sort of interesting. I mean, it's clear he's an ally from the beginning and that's why I hate the way that they do that kind of, is he really an ally or is he not? Is he friend or foe? Yeah, yeah. Thing yeah. again and again and again, that really bugged me that. That was one of my major annoyances with the series because they'd clearly established that he was. Yeah. And they just kept on bringing that up, you know. Yeah, because it was one of these things, for most of the time he would just appear, mm. kind of help out Ryger, um, and then disappear. And then later mm. on, yes, you get the bit with Gunther. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the only little bit of development I, I feel you really got with him is, um, I can't remember what episode it is, but Ryger come he gets captured and tortured. Yeah. I think it might be that episode we talked about earlier. Um, Ryger comes and saves him, you know, and, and Bryman really berates him and says, you shouldn't yeah. have put yourself in. I think it's the episode you're talking about, you know, yeah, we talk about sacrifice. Sacrifice, yeah. Um, and how he was quite willing to, you know, die to, to help out the cause yeah. sort of thing. And I think I feel that is kind of like the only scene of proper mm. character development that Bryman yeah. gets. He has some good dialogue um, with some of his conversations with um, with Riga, you know about like, you know about the whole yeah. thing about sacrifice, about duty, about honor, and you know yeah, he tries to yeah. shape Riga into this kind of heroic sort of figure, yeah. and that part's okay, I guess. It just again his character just isn't is a bit two D really. Yeah. Yeah, they could have done a lot more with him. They could have done a lot more with him, I think. Mm. They could have put they could have given him a, a proper sort of spacecraft or something and not his space scooter. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and they could have just utilized him a bit more. <laughs> yeah. We'll have um we'll move on to Dulles now, uh, mm. Cleo's scheming father. Yeah. I like the fact that he's not portrayed as an outright villain. You know, he's not yeah. exactly a mustache twirling villain. I mean, he does have that scene where he laughs kind of like a bit kind of maniacally after after sort of showing that he's he's not on um, the king's side, but he does believe that he's doing the best thing for Imperius, and he explains that yes. to Cleo in episode three, I think it is. Um, he says there's no way that the Magellan forces can be uh, defeated by even with Dyke Engel. Yeah. So he's like, I'm doing the best thing for the planet, and I hope you understand that. I think there's a little bit, isn't there? There's there's a little bit of his own gain. I think there's mm, there yeah. is a bit of a, a sort of selfish. Um, that's right elements to it that he does he does see it because i you know rebellions promised him um, promised him a position and all the rest of mm. it but he's promised the him to be the that, ruler of imperius hasn't he yes because there's a later right. scene where he, he realizes just how sort of duplicitous rebellion is and that he had no intention of giving him yes. that position you know he's realized he's never really been important to his plans and he's just you know he's just a pawn in mm, rebellions you know, a tool to be used to help bring down the mm. imperious empire, sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And yeah. but he, at the same time, he does think actually, there's we can't defeat these people, so we might as well just try and get yeah. on board with them and and exactly. you know, try and find favor with them, sort mm. of thing. He's getting he's dethroning the king, and he's sort of you know pinching Empel's position in the process and furthering his furthering his career for his own gains. You know, he wants to be the leader, but he's yeah. doing it for yeah. what he thinks. In whatever misguided way, noble reasons. Yes, and again, we you know we don't want to spoil this, but he, he isn't in it for very long, is he? You know, no. his, his story comes to an end, you know, sort of really before the court sort mm. of mark in it. So, yeah, um, it, it doesn't feature particularly, but I'd like to think, you know, with that, you'd think 
you know, we've talked with Cleo that, you know, she has some scenes where she kind of is missing the fatherly figure. Mm. And you think it would maybe they'd use that to shape her a bit more and, yeah. and whatever in the second half of the series, mm. but they don't. Yeah, um, I would have liked to see something that's a bit like of a, that. You know, it's, I find that is really kind of weak writing. Mm. I think you, you're right. And I think that, you know, had there been something that, that kind of was linked to that, had there been something which showed that she'd grown as a character and, and managed to kind of, you know, get by without a dad. Um, yeah. And kind of, you know, grew stronger as a result of being sort of without him, maybe. Something, some sort of arc like that might have been quite yeah. good for her character, I think. And followed up on she... those scenes where she's missing him. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, if if Empel had made her the sort of man-at-arms of, you know, his army yeah, or something like that. Yeah, that would have been nice for the ending. Definitely. Some kind of recognition for the fact that she kind of went halfway across the galaxy battling uh, alongside uh, Riger. And, yeah. You know, ended up sort of uh, helping free the galaxy. After all, it wasn't exactly an easy task. <laughs> and that's where I think, you know, for all these things, it, it kind of potentially, you can see, oh, I think it's, you know, it's maybe going to go this way, but it just doesn't wrap anything mm. up for yeah. those characters. I think it, it you know, it's it underdevelops it doesn't utilise a lot of these characters particularly well. You know, they, yeah. they kind of are just there through the series in a, mm. in a, a lot of the time. I mean, many of the characters actually end the series almost as they began, really, in some ways. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, apart from the ones who don't make it, obviously. But uh, but certainly all the sort of surviving characters of both good and evil are kind of yeah. pretty much where they were at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is, which is you know, the most sort of frustrating thing about uh, about the show in general is it's... It moves things on a little bit and then it kind of doesn't by the end. So, Yeah. So then we have Yuga, who's the youngest member of the Imperious Royal Family. Um, the very idealistic brother mm-hmm. of Riger. Mm-hmm. And I think he is very um, idealistic, isn't he? I think he's... Yeah. And I think that's a reflection of his mature, level of maturity, isn't mm-hmm. it? You know, he yeah. is quite young, inexperienced... I think maybe a bit sort of wet behind the ears mm. kind of character, isn't he? Yeah. Um, I do like the way he they portray his genuine terror at having to pilot Daikengo in the yeah. first episode. Yeah, that's quite effective, that, yeah. I think, you know, for a sort of secondary character, he's actually quite well used in some parts. You know, mm. they don't use him a lot, but he kind of uh, does fulfil a decent role in the series, although he doesn't get, like, an episode that focuses on him or anything like that. He's not actually badly used overall, I would say. Yeah, I agree. I think he's, again, he's he's quite underused. But mm. where he is used, I think it's It's effective to the plot, yeah. I mean, there's that, yeah. there's that episode where Bryman rescues him and he sort of, you know, gets the news to, to Bryman about uh, what's happening on Imperius and things like that. You know, he does, there's a couple of episodes where he serves an important role, like informing the king about yeah. uh, Dulles' betrayal and things like that. So he definitely uh, serves a purpose in the plot. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then at the end, when he's coming to help Riger and Cleo, yeah. um, you know, we talked about the lighthouse and firing the missile off. That's where he's, you know, he's overcome his timidness or his mm. sort of shyness or, you know, lack of confidence in going into battle and, mm. and all the rest of it. And he's now there on the front line, leading the, the final charge of the Imperious Army to yeah. help Riger and defeat Magellan so mm-hmm. uh, it's you know that's quite a good ending point for him I think as a character mm. arc 
Yeah, I mean, like, despite his uh, his underuse, at least he is used sort of you know semi well yeah. compared to some of the other characters, definitely. And then we have King Empel, kind of standard royalty figure, mm. you know, the worried father. You kind of see the he has the weight of the whole ga- empire on his shoulders, doesn't he? He's yeah. trying to do the right thing to save the, the galaxy. You know, that yeah. early episode where they're considering handing over Daikengo, you know, he looks he looks to his um, sort of court to uh, and his advisors to guide him and, and make that sign of decision and stuff because, you know, it's a massive, massive decision because he really, yeah. at the end of the day, he, he wants the, the empire to survive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it shows, it shows him to be quite a good ruler in the fact that he'll take people's advice and yeah. he'll kind of uh, you know he's he's considered he's not like some sort of tyrant king you know he's quite he's quite sort of fair and measured and you know wants people's input. Yeah, <clears throat> but he's quite good because you see him as well. His frustration with Riga when mm. Riga doesn't do what he says or goes off on his own or whatever. That's um, <laughs> yeah. You know, that, there's some there's some quite good t- you know little touches where you you uh, you see his frustration with Riga. Definitely. There's there's like there's a very sort of apparent kind of dynamic established early on between the mm. two of them. Like that he's he's the rowdy kind of errant son, you know, he's the one who's gives him trouble. Yeah. <laughs> as much as he cares about him, he sort of he's concerned about his antics at times. <laughs> because Rygar being the middle child wouldn't be the heir apparent, you know, mm. Zamson would have been. Um so he never really had that thing where he had to really take that kind of position you mm. know and all that responsibility on but with Zamson being killed off in the first episode all of a sudden all that weight is shift. now on Riga's shoulders yeah absolutely so, yeah whether the king wants it or not since he nicks Daikengo in <laughs> yeah <laughs> and uh, sort of uh, does, does, a, does a runner <laughs> um, and, and the same for the queen as well you know I think you know she has that worried mother yeah. about her you know that episode uh, 10 where she she goes to to see him you know she's a worried mother at yeah, the end of the is. day but um i feel she's even kind of less developed than the king you know she's definitely you know it she doesn't, doesn't get much uh, screen mm, time at all yeah i mean generally it's the scenes where the king's more important where she is kind yeah. of conversing with him and talking about what they're going to do about a certain situation but she's not really given much to sort of uh, do plot-wise, apart from the sort of conversations with the king, is a scene where they yeah. all get imprisoned and things like that, you know, where when the government gets overthrown and she gets chucked in a cell with the king. And, and there's, yeah. there's a bit of a bond, it shows a bit of a bond between her and Riga because of that episode we discussed. Yeah, um, yeah Which yeah. is probably the most kind of the, the delve into her character, really. So let's have a talk about Daikengo's antagonists. Uh, we'll start with... Rebolian, seeing as he's kind of like the main uh, antagonist in the show, um, he is this kind of like childlike character who is yeah. totally besotted with Lady Barracross. Yes, absolutely. Um, they have a very strange relationship, don't they? Because yeah. on the one hand, she treats him like a child and sort of encourages him to do better and is like tries to big him up and your plan's going to succeed and all this sort of thing. Um, but then there's the sexual element to the relationship, yeah. which is really yeah. odd for a kid's show. She yeah. controls him with sex, really. You know, she'll flash a bit of leg yeah. at him, you yeah. know, stick a cleavage out, get close to him. Any kind, he's always sort of sweating. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, like sort of, ooh. And really, <laughs> it's, it's very hard to um, not talk about Rebellion and Lady Barrowcross together. Together, really, because, yeah. Because they're so 
intrinsically linked, as, as mm. you say, because she basically sexually teases him constantly, constantly throughout yeah. the show. Almost every very, episode. It is almost <laughs> every episode because she'll, um, you know, she'll talk seductively to him. Mm-hmm. You know, she'll, you know, she gives him like you say, gives him the little kiss on the on the cheeks and you know, sort of talks in a very, very sort of seductive voice. Mm. And she kind of keeps on sort of dangling this carrot of this sort of promise of a reward, shall we say. Yeah, yes. (laughs) If he does well, which if he tries to sort of get close to her, she'll sort of shoot him down and say, you fool, as if I'd ever be with a wretch like you. Exactly. It's this really weird dynamic between the two of them. I mean, she treats him like a child and then it's all sort of, you know, alluring and trying to seduce him, which is just wrong. Yeah. <laughs> quite frankly. <laughs> and she's always treating him, you know, she's like, gives him like oiling, because he's quite vain, Rebellion. Yeah. He's always worried about rusting and how he looks. Yeah. Um, but then Lady Barrowcross will, you know, she'll give him a treat, she'll oil him, or she'll give yeah. him some food. You know, there's that bizarre scene where he's eating these nuts and bolts and going on about yeah. how good they are and stuff. <laughs> it reminds me of uh, Nono in Ulysses 31. He always ate nuts and bolts yeah. as a snack, didn't yeah. he? <laughs> <laughs> I, I did find That's that That's very famous. true. That's very true. Yeah. Yeah. Rebellion is really childlike, and he is completely besotted with her. Mm. He's really, really easily manipulated. Yeah, he'll do anything um, to, to you know, sort of please her. Exactly, and in episode eight, he even says that he'll give his life for her. Mm. He does near and the then, end but, as well. He basically says he's going to sacrifice himself because of his failures. Yeah, Cause that's true. Because yeah, there's a scene where Magellan yeah. sort of uh, gives um, Barracross a really hard time. In, yeah. Like a true kind of boss feeding it down the chain, she then gives him a hard time talking about his failures. And he's yeah. like, well, I'll do anything. You know, I'll even sacrifice myself to prove me sort of loyalty. You know, he's yeah, kind he of does, prepared he to does do a suicide run. Yeah, and it's it's very strange, and and she, being really manipulative, she plays on that and teases him time, and gets yeah. what she wants, and and this is kind of partly where the writing kind of falls down, but it's this constant thing when we see Emperor Magellan appear, she berates Barracross for failing to defeat Daikengo again, mm-hmm. and then she berates Rebolian. But then, kind of appeases him and teases him. Mm. Uh, it, it's very, very strange. It is. <laughs> and, and like you say, the teasing bit and the this kind of alluding to it, leading mm. to something else. It, I mean, it's very, very strange because Rebellion being very childlike and yet he's incredibly vindictive and mm. nasty at the same time. Yeah, he's right. Nasty he, piece of work, and in, in the way he treats his subordinates, the way he wants yeah. to, he's fine with like killing his killing uh, sort of agents and things he, he quite yeah. frequently kills people who are working for him yeah you know and you know Disposes the, the, the flying monster. sword that he's got you know he'll stab people in the back you know rather yeah, quite than literally yeah quite literally stab them in the back you know he does it more than once it Rebellion reminds me in many ways of um killer the butcher from zambot 3 yes i was going to say that he's that villain that has the sort of silly comedic elements to him yeah yeah he's completely brutal and like unforgiven to his henchmen, yeah. and and you know he literally just uses and discards his henchmen and sort of throws them away when they serve the purpose and murders them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he very much he's very much in that mould. I think Rebellion, mm. and then Lady Barrowcross. You know, we we we've talked several times about you know how overly sexualized she is because 
And again, her outfit, again, it's the, the bit of breast sticking out the side, the shortness, the leg. Yeah. You know, the bits where she's sprawled across like a chaise long seductively mm. in front of him. And um, there's so many shots where it shows you like Rob Bullion looking at her and kind of checking her out. Yeah, I know. And <laughs> it's um, it's really odd that it lingers on her body and stuff as well, which is yeah. just, just really quite odd for a kid's show. I mean, there's bits where it really shows you close-ups of the cleavage and everything, and you're just like, really? Well, like, you know, this is a kid's show in 1978, wow. Yeah, there's that one episode, and I haven't written down what episode it is, but basically she goes under disguise, and she's dressed up like in this... The only way I can describe this is like a slutty secretary. Pretty much, look. yeah. Yeah, it's and when she's, she's, got this thing. she's classed as Dr. Cross, isn't it? That's which, right, Which yeah. is a pretty uh, paper-thin sort of moniker. Yeah. And she's got, I mean, rather than having long jet black hair, she's got line of like a bob. But mm. she's kind of got like a suit on with, and like this cleavage. And then there's a shot towards the end in the second half where she flashes a nipple. Yeah. You know, and I'm, <laughs> when I saw that, I was just like, well, you've kind of really, well, you've crossed that line now. Yeah, you have. And it's, do, do you know what I mean? And, I, mm. and, and this is where I really struggle with it. You've had all this sexual subtext all the way through between the two characters. And then you've got this bit and she's kind of trying to seduce Rygar almost. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. And then, again, this is a kid's show. This is a Saturday morning, <laughs> eight or nine-year-old's kid's show. And as it we've talked belief, about many times it? on this podcast, you know, only only on Japanese TV, really. I mean, it was mm. a very different sort of what was acceptable. But then yeah. she flashes this nipple. And I'm like... <laughs> Oh, they've really gone and done it now. It's got a, a flash of <laughs> yep. boob. They went there. <laughs> and they went there. I, I, I know I was absolutely open mouth gobsmacked when, so when they did so that. Bizarre. I mean, there's just so many elements to that relationship that are kind of gobsmacking. If I can just go back to um, Rebellion for a second, he's not only shown to be sleazy with, with Barracross, but also with Cleo as well. Yeah. There's yeah. a scene where he's sword fighting with her and he says, oh, I'm so lucky to be fighting such a lovely girl. And it's like, yeah, and, it's, yeah. and it's a really kind of horrible, sort of sleazy, wincy yeah. moment. If the universe of Daikengo had a Me Too movement, then he'd be popping up in your Twitter feed for all the yeah. wrong reasons, wouldn't he, really? He would. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he really, really would. Um, it's a sign of the times of when it was made, you know. I think so, yeah. The other thing I get... Um, I get kind of frustrated with those characters is that Barracross repeatedly gets a second chance mm. no matter how badly she's done. And I know it's, you know, it happens in Gatchaman and, and all the rest of it. Yeah, all, a lot of the 70s stuff, it has but that kind the of The way formula. it's used here, it's, oh, I don't know, it just feels really, really overused. It just plays out exactly the same. And it, I, I think the way it's done kind of makes the show a bit dull in places. Yeah. Um, Makes the Definitely. characters a bit dull. Um, mm. And then finally, we have Emperor Magellan himself, who, mm. um, again, I think is massively underused. Yeah, I mean, he's he's only in, like, a few sort of key episodes before his appearance at the end. Yeah. And whenever you look at him, do you just think of a Yeti? Because that's all I can think of yeah. as a cartoon <laughs> Yeti. If I think of how a Yeti would look in a sort of yeah. kid's cartoon show, that is what I think of, a white-haired... Yeah. monkey-like sort of yes, ape sort exactly. of figure. Yeah. The abominable snowman. And that's that's how I kind of view him. I mean, the design isn't bad, actually. It looks okay. You know, he looks like a kind of evil enough. But it's just so funny how it fits that kind of archetype of what you expect yeah. a yet your abominable <laughs> snowman to look like. <laughs> <laughs> 
So he reminds me a bit how he's portrayed is a bit like Leader X. I it think, is. In Gatchaman. Because, you know, he's you just see this his sort head. of face that appears on the screen, isn't he? Yeah, kind of like, you know, on a sort of monitor. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's always his head you sort of see talking and you don't see the rest of his body. Yeah. He's kind of dis- he's like disembodied and he's you just see his kind of hair like blown in the breeze as if he's got a as if he's got a huge wind kind of blown on him to yeah. make him look more evil. And his mouth never moves either. He's just kind of No, I know, yeah. It's one of those odd things. I don't know if that was a cost cutting thing or whether that was to make him look like he's kind of psychically sort of speaking or something. It's sometimes not really clear in these shows whether they're actually no, no, talking directly it isn't. to the to the sort of but there's no, other antagonists. But there's no background to him. There's no um, mm. like what, how he became emperor how he or, became and really kind of what is he, he wants to dominate the universe but it's like it's as paper thin as that his yeah his backstory i mean um, to be to be fair to daikingo although there are a lot of shows where the villain is kind of paper thin and it's just he's a mustache twirling evil villain who wants to dominate the galaxy um you generally do get some sort of like thing about their aim yeah. If they want to dominate the galaxy, sometimes it's for resources, sometimes it's to enslave planets and or you know, like to take over the technology or to make themselves sort of the superior kind of race or what have you, or there's something, but with this it is literally just as I just want to take over the universe, really. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I want to do with my weekend, you know, I'm just <laughs> it's you know, it's just a desire that he has really. There's no motivation explored. Yeah. I feel he's just there as the big bad to Yeah motivate Barracross and mm. you know berate Barracross and, and nothing else really mm. it's yeah yeah and and that is kind of the, the the sort of only position that he kind of fulfills and when he appears before the sort of heroes at the end in space again it's not really clear exactly if he's there initially it's kind of like almost like he's a projection or something like yes, he kind of looks a bit yeah. see-through like he's some kind of like hologram but mm. then he actually grabs Dykengel so it's so he's he must be physically there, but again, it's another one of those things, a bit like the mouth move, mouth movement. It doesn't really communicate things well to the audience. No, no, it's I know. It's a bit mixed up in that way. Yeah, yeah, he's a very, very odd character. Yeah, and it's really. it's kind of like what you know. There's a couple of finales like that I can think of in anime where it's not really clear about the kind of nature of the sort of villain, and yeah, they kind of yeah. you know don't really communicate a few things very well to the audience. But that is. A bit of a shame because I kind of felt like you know some epic fight against him might have been a lot more sort of satisfying and and just knowing a bit more about his motivations and background would have been yeah, yeah. I like this design though the, the sort of yeti monkey type design with sort of fangs and stuff does look a bit more menacing than some of the other mm. enemies in the series he definitely looks very alien and kind of a bit more threatening than Rebellion which looks a, who looks a bit silly yeah because <laughs> he does look a bit silly <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a lot of there's a tradition of a lot of seventy superhero robot shows where a lot of the villains are kind of monster-like, but um, he's the only kind of enemy of the type of that type of kind of humanoid monster, and everyone else is either robots, you know, yeah. there's robot soldiers with yeah. faces that look a little bit like, I suppose, like a shark. They've got a kind of big mouth with teeth that look a bit like a shark's mouth. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's a bit. Yeah, he's very, very underused. Again. Mm. I, it's a shame they didn't do think, more with him. I kind of, I kind of liked his character because it kind of felt like familiar super robot territory in a good yeah. way, but they just didn't do enough with him, unfortunately. No, no. So digging into the production and music and mecha design of Daikengo, the animation I think is best described as basic but serviceable. Mm. 
Yeah, um, it's a real mixed bag with this show because you do get a few cuts that are brilliant, but for yeah. the most part, you're right, it is serviceable and kind of of its time. There's elements in it like that episode with the uh, episode 16 with the birds. There's there's bits like that. There's flourishes that yeah. are kind of really really well done. Definitely. But then there's other bits that, especially in the first half, that are really, really simplistic. Because yeah. there's a sword fight between Ryger and Lady Barrowcross in episode eight. Mm-hmm. And they've deliberately used angles that cut down on the amount of action and actual animation you have to yeah. do. And there's quite a few examples of that throughout. Maybe I think maybe the first 15 episodes. Mm, you're right, yeah. There, there very much is. And it's the, the problem that I have is the reuse of footage as well. Yeah. It's not just the sort of skimping on techniques. It's also the painful reuse of footage. I mean, a lot of shows in the 70s reused footage, but a lot yeah. of them were more skilled at doing it. You know, like yeah. an example that comes to mind is in uh, Kishan where he's taking out loads of enemy robots and it's the same type and he does the same attack on them. But there's so many of them that it'll just show you the same cut yeah. again very, very quickly. But, you know, it's not lingered on and it's, you know, just a sort of stock piece of animation. But it's, it's, but it's alongside that... There's loads of other new shots as well, so you don't feel too bad about it. Whereas in this, there's scenes where they use a piece of animation in a fight against an enemy mecha, then they reuse it literally seconds later. Yeah. There's yeah. there's another cut, and then there's you know maybe like ten seconds later they use the same cut they just used again. Yeah. And they might do that like four times in the same episode. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's where it's. I think ultimately it's on the whole it's no more than than serviceable. I think in the last maybe 10 episodes, bits of actual animation quality and maybe, mm. you know, there's a slight improvement in fluidity. Yeah. I think I, I did notice there were certain scenes and movements from Daikengo um, that I yes. thought, oh, actually, that kind of looks a bit better now. Yeah, you know? there's, there's a few that kind of like are, are a bit like the opening sequence with the fluidity of yeah. them, where one cut of animation of him yeah. slashing his sword or doing a kick or a punch yeah. looks really good, for like very briefly. And... It's again. I mean, it's a thing with inconsistency. Inconsistency seems to be this show's strong point. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, but yeah, it's it is very uneven in that way. Unfortunately, I mean, there's some interesting use of perspective in it at mm. times. I mean, like there's an early episode where you see one of the enemy soldier robots piloting a ship, and you see him trying to evade Daikengo, and Daikengo's fist comes towards his cockpit and kind of obliterates him, and you yeah. sort of see a kind of soldier's eye view of his own death. Yeah, <laughs> and there's also a bit in the first episode where Daikengo flies over turrets, taking them out. It looks quite stylish, I think. Yeah. But um, but like you say, you know, most of the time, unfortunately, it it doesn't kind of like you know do anything more much more than serviceable. Some of the fight scenes and battle scenes between Daikengo and whatever sort of skeletal Magellan mecha he's fighting, mm-hmm. again, some of them are reasonably good. They tend to be very very short. But yeah, they do. You, you get you kind of get the odd cut that is, and it's kind of like it feels like they've put their effort into a few scenes. Mm. It's like actually we're going to make this bit look really good. That's what and I've got get, in my notes as well. Exactly. Yeah. It you know, and you get like, like some scenes where a bit more focused on than others. Yeah. And it feels like you've got like two or three seconds of animation. You know, a movement where the two mecha come together or they swing round each other or swoop or something. Mm-hmm. And it's like, and it's literally seconds, but mm-hmm. they've put loads and loads of effort and they've doubled the cell count or whatever. Yeah. You know, to, to make it look really, really good for those few seconds. And mm-hmm. there's little spots where 
there's these little real shining moments and it typically is only in the battle scenes where this happens but mm. and you think and you just get this thing you go oh that looks quite nice you know and then it falls yeah. into it's like usual you know the bit usual oh the movement scene that happened 10 seconds ago again it's yeah. very very odd i mean there's glimmers of of real animation skill there but it's kind of very far and few between yeah, it is. I mean, another bit that I liked animation-wise was the light speed jump. I mean, it's it's not particularly complicated animation-wise. It's quite simple, but it's it's quite psychedelic, and it's mm. sort of very 70s. It kind of reminds me a little bit of uh, psychedelic 60s and 70s sci-fi when the sort of yeah. you know when they have some sort of like like light speed jump, and also a little bit of Gatchaman's uh, Firebird sequence. The way yeah, they always I, I look like say kind exactly of the same. The kind of hanging yeah. on for dear life as they sort of you know use the sort of ability yeah um, yeah that sort of thing i like i like that but one what i found frustrating about it is that later on in the series they jump quite a few times without using it and that was a bit of animation <laughs> they could have reused which i would have liked to have seen yeah yeah and they just cut away and i'm like oh i kind of wanted to see the light speed jump sequence again yeah <laughs> the animation is very effective i think yeah. in that you know it's it's like it does say, the job it's, and it's it does the job and it, it looks good and um you know portrays that kind of jump and like you say it's exactly like the firebird sequence in Gatchaman. you know they're all draining under the stress of the yeah. the jump and the action and you know you get yeah. the, the sort of jittery uh screen Jimmy and the, screen, the sweat yeah. and everything yeah yeah like you i'd have liked to have seen that a bit more i think that was one bit of animation that they could have used a handful more times and i wouldn't have bothered yeah absolutely i mean it it, it fulfills a similar role to a lot of the transformation sequences in mech yeah. shows which you don't mind if they're reused because they're you know they're done really well and they're just a part of the show that always happens yeah so it's kind of makes sense to reuse them but you've got all these other scenes where they reuse stuff that is really annoying yeah why didn't they use that again i would have loved to, to have seen that and it's 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 a simple animation <laughs> technique but it works you know yeah there's some really good pumping music in the action scenes mm. as well so you know where they those battle scenes are quite good and you know do have um, a bit better animation in them they do actually put some really good music over the top yeah. as well. Um, and so the, the battle scenes actually do feel quite dynamic mm. at times. I like the use of the um, music track. Plays quite often when it shows you Barracross and Rebellion's Fortress. It's like a sort of funk track. Yeah. It's quite funky intro. That kind of, I think I felt that that wasn't always used well, but it, but like in the intro bits when it shows you the bass, I quite like its use in the, in that. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of old cartoons, even like you know American eighties cartoons, and that had a kind of theme for when it showed you the villains, mm. and it feels kind of reminiscent of that Saturday morning cartoon theme. The villains have their own theme that plays when they discuss their plans and things, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, some of the music, like I said before, does feel a bit inappropriate. It mm. feels either a bit too sort of funky or upbeat when the yeah. scenes a bit downbeat. That's what I um, meant. It's not always used in the best way. I like when it shows you them kind of discussing the plans in the hideout, but there's other points where they use it which are like just, no, it doesn't quite work. Yeah. It's too lively yeah. for what it's trying to portray emotionally. Yeah, you know? exactly. It, it's it's kind it of feels very, very out of kilter sometimes, the music mm. with the show. The, the only other bit of music that I kind of want to talk about, there is this bit of music that gets used sporadically and it feels... Very much like um, the music in the original Gundam TV series. Mm -hmm. There's this kind of slow military-esque trumpet 
Yes, I know which one you so mean, yeah. It, it feels like a lot of um, the music from Gundam, especially in the scenes in the original Gundam show where like white bass is taken off or something. You know, I had to go and check to see if it was by the same person because it's almost Gundam, like almost used that music, to be honest. Yeah, it's it kind of has a bit of a grandiose sort of we will mm. be victorious feel. Yes, yeah, yeah. Looking at the mecha design, um, Daikengo's design, I think he's fairly standard 70s super robot, you know, as we said, designed by the great Kunio Okawara. But yeah. I don't think he's doing anything um, exceptional here like he would no. really do in the It's 80s. got some interesting aspects to it, though. We talked about the mouth guard and the fangs and the fact yeah. he looks a bit sort of evil compared to many yeah. of the more sort of heroic uh, looking um, super robots. I like a lot of elements of his weaponry and things like that. You know, I like the fact that, again, it goes, like many 70 Super Robot shows, it has a bit of a martial arts sort yes. of inspired design. It has He has a weapon called their Daikin Chuck, which are like nunchucks. And yeah. they, uh, they have, like, energy between the flails instead of a chain. Because it's kind of like an energy weapon and a sort of bludgeoning weapon as well. Yeah, yeah. And he has a lot of interesting sort of weapons and techniques. I like the fact that he has this attack where he uses his swords, but then he also has one where he breathes fire on the swords. Lights them on fire and then takes out the enemy mecha. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a nice bit of overkill, as as you often get with uh, the seventies shows. <laughs> but I think by this point, you know, we've we've talked about the context of the the super robot sort of era, and mm. you know, by this point, you were kind of over that main peak through mm. sort of seventy six, seventy seven, like we talked yeah. about in Zambot three review. Mm-hmm. Um, by this point, the designs had become very generic. The weapons. Mm. And that you know the the weapons tropes were very very generic. Um, well, I mean, it definitely you know, has tropes in it. I just kind of like some of the abilities and weapons and things. I wouldn't say there's anything particularly like revolutionary in it. No, I, I mean to be honest, I, I there was nothing that really kind of did anything special for me with no. with Daikengo. I, I say I, I agree with the mouth and the the kind of evil tone, mm. um, which again I think is massively underused. You see it quite effectively when. Daikengo wakes up in episode one. Yeah. And that whole spirit. And I'd like to have kind of seen the show use that devil bit more. Mm. Yeah, it would have been nice to on. see him have some sort of like consciousness, a bit yeah. like some of the other sort of shows, you know, where they're actually kind of alive. Yeah, I would completely agree. Because I think that is an element that they could have really played on, the devil mm. element of Daikengo. Mm-hmm. Um, and having this bit like in Lazner, where you know it goes into the VMAX mode and it just takes over. It's like a you know Lazner has a split personality, mm. and when Ag's in trouble, it it just takes over. Mm-hmm. And I think they could have done something very similar with Daikengo. Yeah, you know they kind of built it up a little bit in the first episode and then just didn't use it again. I was kind of expecting almost the beast there to be some sort of link revealed between the Devil Star and Daikengo and yes. how it affects the robot. Yeah. So I was thinking maybe something would happen with the Devil Star which would send him berserk or send him yeah, evil or yeah. something. There would be something like that. And like you say, it's a real shame that it doesn't explore anything like that, unfortunately. But on the flip side of that, the skeletal Magellan mecha, I think some of them are absolutely great designs because yeah, really that like I think is quite unique. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's, I've seen other ones that have some skeleton robots in it, but the but the rush with it is a theme. You know, it's it's mm. very much a theme, and they have lots of quite different ones. Yeah, and I, I feel that the designs actually got um, more conventional as the show went on. Like you know, in, yes. in episodes um, seventeen, 
there's a rhino mecha and that's much more like what would come later with a lot of the combining robot animal shows yeah yeah and also super sentai stuff as well there's one with mechanical sharks and there's also mm. one with like uh, rock based mecha where the parts look like boulders that kind mm. of join together and those designs feel like a bit of a departure from the skeletal stuff you know the more what you yeah. find in a more modern show and they're well drawn and they're kind of quite you know well done but you know with it being all the sort of skeletal mecha all the way through it's kind of a bit odd that they change that and have these kind yeah. of departure ones. They do look well drawn, though. Yeah, they do. They do. And I think the Magellan Mecha are, are pretty good. I think that there's a lot of really neat designs. Yeah, um, they kind of have a bit of a menace about them as well with kind of they do. skeletal yeah. and evil. Yeah, yeah. It's only really those Mecha and Magellan himself, the Emperor, that, that actually have a bit of an evil look on the show. Yeah. The only other thing with the, the Mecha that I really want to touch on is Daikengo's transformation sequence. Mm. Um, there is particular sequences that are very, very long. Mm. They are kind of overlong, and you kind of have lost interest halfway through it. <laughs> as well. Do you know what I mean? I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, I think it's because of the decision to make it sort of modular and have all the parts that separate and have like Dyke and Buggy and Dyke and Caterpillar and things like that. And the fact that there are scenes where it splits up, it turns it into the various vehicles, then it rejoins and then it becomes a robot again. And yeah. sometimes it can do that like two or three times in an episode and you like actually cut to it being in its other form like a lot of other shows yeah, would have done. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, the transformation sequences I think are far too long. Um, and some of them have like really dull music playing over the top as well, <laughs> yeah. which just kind of makes it even more boring than it already is. Mm. And <laughs> it's another one of those inconsistencies. Sometimes they play the cool themes when using that yeah. sequence, the ones that you really like, and other times they play that dull music. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it is <laughs> just another sort of inconsistency to add to the pile, really. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I think we'll uh, wrap the review up and summarise our thoughts on Daikengo in terms of rating it I really struggled with it as a show because generally I found it quite dull quite repetitive Mm -hmm. tonally all over the place but then at the same time there are bits of it that are quite good you know there are a handful of really good episodes in it Mm -hmm. you know especially 16 18 and 21 Mm -hmm. um, are really good you know I like the enemy mecha design you know, there are bits of really nice looking animation in it. So I'm, I am really, really kind of mixed. I am as well. I'd str- I mean, I'm not great at rating things at the best of times. I struggle to kind of uh, come up with a number sometimes. But with this one, I really did. Like, I was really wasn't sure what to rate it. Yeah. And it's, it's because it is so inconsistent. And there are things, there are some of those one-off episodes that you mentioned that are really good. And I always enjoy shows that kind of push the boundaries for the time and you know, um, were a bit sort of, uh, had some sort of adult themes in them and stuff. Yeah. Even in yeah. a kid's show, you know, some of those kind of like episodes that stand out quite a bit. But there's just so much wasted potential in this show as well. That yeah. I find it quite yeah. frustrating. I agree. There is a lot of wasted potential in this show. There are so many elements that could have been built on. You could have had a really good 26 episode TV series, but, you know, there's just ideas that are squandered. Mm. And it's it has just all the elements it's just, in a classic, really, but it just doesn't do anything with them. No, and it's kind of like they had some paper thin ideas, and as we've said several times, I don't know whether it's inexperience, you know, inability or whatever, but they just time skills were maybe. squandered. Yeah, and you were left with this mess 
of a show. Did I enjoy it? I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm at exactly times, the same. yeah. At times, I enjoyed this show, but yeah. on the whole, especially in the first half, by the time it got to about episode fourteen or fifteen, I kind of was bored with it. I found it yeah. exceedingly dull. I must admit, um, there were times I struggled with it as well. I mean, I've mentioned there's been spin-offs in OBS and little bits and bobs of shows that we've watched that haven't been the main show that I've that I've not been too fond of. But this is the first TV series that we've reviewed that yeah. I actually was felt a bit like, oh, I hope this gets a bit better soon and <laughs> yeah. picks up a bit, because right now it's kind of feeling a bit, bit generic. And obviously when you've seen a lot of 70s Super Robot shows, you're always going to have tropes, you're always going to have familiar things. Yes. But it's the way that they handle them. I mean, yeah. going back to Daltanius very briefly, um, that is a show that has a lot of those things, but it still has a really good core story. Yeah, And yeah. for all it, it has a few missteps along the way, the overall product is supreme pretty good. Yeah. Whereas this, I can't really say the same, but unfortunately, there's moments of brilliance and there's some really good one-off episodes, but as a cohesive whole, it just yeah. doesn't quite work, unfortunately. No, it doesn't gel, and yeah, it was not something as a whole I enjoyed watching. Mm. Because it's got those bits in it and those, say, three particularly good episodes, some good character stuff, mm-hmm. some nice designs some nice bits of animation and stuff. I'm kind of at the four or five mark mm, with yeah. it. I, I can't give it higher than a five. I really can't. No, I'm the same. I, I actually have got five written down on, on my uh, sheet here. I think that those episodes that do enough to kind of elevate, make it worth watching. I wouldn't say that there's very few anime I've really regretted watching. I certainly didn't regret watching this. No. It had its, it had its moments, but... It's not something I'd be like in a rush to revisit, definitely. No. And this is one of those shows that it might literally be another 10 or 15 years before I maybe got round to revisiting mm. this. You know? yeah. it's, not, it's definitely not something I would rush out to go and watch it's again. A, it's a shame because it's, a little, it's probably a little scene show because like um, Daltanius, it was only quite recently subbed and it's from the 70s and it doesn't have an official release. So that alone ensures a lot of people haven't actually seen it. So for it to be unearthed and for Lura to go to the uh, lengths of subbing it, uh, yeah. which we're really grateful for, by the way, you know, it's it's fantastic yeah. that you, you continue, all these people continue to do these things. It is just a shame that it's, you know, so much effort's been put in to unearth it. And yeah. it's kind of yeah. a little bit generic in some ways. I mean, it's, it's got interesting elements, but unfortunately, they just, as we've said many times, they haven't really been utilised as they should have been. Yeah, because it's a bit like shows like Diapolon, which yeah. these sort of very late seventies Super Robot shows that were kind of, I don't know, they feel a bit lost and they feel like this. There's this kind of they came forgotten... after, after the sort of surge in popularity. Yeah, and you know, after the payday Mazinga um, shows, after the Get a Robo shows, after the Tamino Sunrise Super Robot stuff, and all the Toei stuff, you know, the the Grendizers and and mm. all the rest of it. There's this. It feels like there's this kind of bit at the very late 70s maybe 1980 81 but mm-hmm. it's kind of almost this kind of forgotten lost tail end of the super yeah. robot show and, and shows like this kind of just fall into that category i mean maybe there know. was a couple of um studios who just thought because super robot shows had been popular up until that point yeah let's just sort of churn one out because it'll get viewers but yeah this is definitely a cash in 
Mm. No, no two ways about mm. it. It was. I mean, like, like you say, it could be, really could be other things. I mean, it could be an experience. It could be a lot of things. But yeah, this it definitely feels like it came too late, and yeah. it also didn't have a lot of effort put into it for whatever reason. No, whether no. it was budget, time constraints, or the passion just wasn't there. Maybe it came. Yeah, yeah. At a time when you know people didn't care too much about Super Road shows, they thought we'll sneak it out and kind of. Just take the money and run, you know. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can't recommend this really. I no. can't. You know, say go. <laughs> if you're really into mecha like us, and you just kind of want to be, you know, you're a completist, and you just want to see it all. Yeah. See, a, see it just so you can say you've seen it. But if you're I a historian, other than that, yeah. If you're a mecha historian and you want to see what this show is all about, just to fit yeah. in the context of everything else, it's worth watching for that. But don't expect greatness. Definitely not. Yeah. If, if you're a casual fan, you know, I can't recommend it. Because There's definitely much better shows to check out if you're a casual fan, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So that brings us to an end of our review of Daikengo. What are we going to do next time? So next episode, we are going to review 1988 Sunrise TV show Spirit Hero Wataru. We're not going to do this as a retrospective. We're only going to do the the first TV series on this. But as a subgenre of mecha, you know, there are a lot of kind of almost kiddie hero mecha shows, sort of comedy mecha shows. This yeah. uh, Ryu Knight, you know, the NG Knight Lamuni series, mm-hmm. all those type of things. So often overlooked. People often mm. think mecha. They think very serious, you know, Votans, mm. Gundam, Macross, that sort of thing. But you know, there's. A, a very other big popular side to, to yeah. Mecha and um, we haven't touched on that yet so yeah I'll be really interested to check that out I, th- I think a good term for this sort of subgenre might be Chibi Mecha <laughs> yes yes it is like Chibi Mecha yeah absolutely absolutely so where you can find us you can find us on Twitter at Retro Mecha we have a companion blog to the podcast uh, com. Find the podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, all major podcast hosting services. Just search for Retro Mecha Podcast. Craig, tell us where we can find your blog. Um, you can find my blog, animeheadsretroworld.wordpress.com. And I'm also on Twitter, at AnimeHeadsRetro. And you can find my other podcast, Retro Anime Podcast, at Retro Anime and at the same podcast hosting sites as this. So that brings us to an end. So, mm. yes, interesting discussion as always, Craig. Definitely, yeah, I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's uh, Even when it's not the greatest quality show, it always makes uh, for a fun discussion, definitely. Well, that's it. You know, we've got to look at the uh, the whole breadth of the genre, haven't we? Indeed, so, take the rough with the smooth, as it were. <laughs> you've got to take the good with the bad, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, but as long as you can have fun with it, you know. And, yeah, And yeah, it's just absolutely. important for the context of things as well. 
It is, yeah, exactly. It's we've got to look, you know, look at the whole breadth and scope of the whole mecha genre. Indeed. So, and on that note, we'll say goodbye. Yep, we bid you farewell. Take care. Bye. See you soon, Craig. Bye, everybody. The opening and closing theme music to the podcast is Molten Alloy from Purple Planet Music. All other music used within the podcast is copyrighted to its respective creators.